Hey guys, I hope you're ready for this one. I've been trying to get this guy on the show for years and now it's finally happened. Blue Saraceno, he's here. And despite the fact that he doesn't do a lot of interviews, he's actually really good at them. Uh, he's got great stories, including working with Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker from Cream, uh, his audition and time uh, playing in Poison, his tryout with David Lee Roth, jamming with Les Paul, and so many more great stories. It's a long one, but it's a fun one. Stay right there. When I was a kid, and I, I mean, I, I played a little guitar. I sucked, and I, I gave up because of people like you, because I'm like, I can't be as good as guys like this. But I took guitar lessons, and uh, my guitar teacher, we worked on one of your songs from Hairpick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then he went to, like, I think it was the Nam thing, and he, he saw you there, and he, and he, like, he got your autograph. So I still have that. Is that you? That's your autograph, right? Yeah, yeah. Thank God yeah. it's not a check. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that was like so, so weird. It's like things yeah. are coming full circle here. So Yeah, it's 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 been an interesting existence. I mean, I gotta be honest with you. I mean, keep in mind I started in Connecticut. So right. just, you know, I was just a kid kind of in the very middle of literally Middletown, Connecticut, which was very blue collar. Uh, I always describe it every time I try to explain to people, it's kind of like the Sopranos meets Deer Hunter. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so uh they're they're oh. really wasn't a ton of options and um, music was kind of really the thing that, that really, it, it was the thing that I could kind of just universally agree. I'm like, I, right, this, this makes sense to me. And, and uh, I just kind of pursued it. It was very frustrating because I, I, I wanted to get out of the gates so much faster than I did. Uh, and now that I have kids and my kids want to do acting and, you know, I, I realized that's just, that is just the byproduct of wanting um you know, to, to live in the dream business, basically. It's like, you know, uh, I've got kids and they are so talented. I mean, these, these, you know, I mean, I mean, I'm, you know, like, honestly, like just looking at it realistically, not with like parents blinders on. And it's still just very frustrating because, you know, the opportunities have to present themselves. You have to make the opportunities present themselves with through, you know, so my point being is that, um, in, in, in retrospect, whenever telling the story, it always comes off like a really like, you know, well-orchestrated story. And it, you know, in reality, it wasn't, it was literally no more complicated than, man, I got to get out of here because Connecticut is not going to be for me long-term. And uh, it was just one foot in front of the other. And then whatever opportunity presented itself, really trying to make the absolute most out of it. So it was kind of like a game of open, open, an open doors game. You would just go through whatever, came up. And so the crazy part uh, is at one point I, I was working with a manager named Brian Cohen. The guy was great. He was a, an outstanding manager and he owned a, a store, a music store called Brian Guitars or Brian's Guitars. I honestly forget. Um, but uh, he uh, was, he had connections with Michael Bolton because uh, Michael Bolton was, was from New Haven, Connecticut. And so at one point he had sent this demo that I sent out and this is, keep in mind, guitar was, very much in vogue at the time. You know what I mean? It was kind of like, you know, how UFC is, is the thing now or whatever. But um, at one point, Michael Bolton was like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, I'd work with this guy. I'd work on writing some songs with them and let's get him a deal. And, you know, so I was going to kind of go that path. And then I had this garbage car, Dodge Lancer. And on my way <laughs> driving into Manhattan, which was like a two hour drive, it blew a head gasket for the third time. Uh, and I couldn't make a writing session. This was before cell phones and all this stuff. So in essence, uh, 
I couldn't make it because the car just, you know, I, I didn't want to, it wasn't going to make it through traffic of, of, of New York. So I pulled over, I called my manager from a payphone, and he's like, yeah, you're probably better coming back. You know, I came back. And at that point, because I didn't make the writing session, they were like, I don't know how serious this guy is. And they decided not to work with me. So then I was like, well, it looks like I'm doing guitar records. And that's literally how the path began. One door closed and one door opened. But how did you tell the story about how you, uh, your dad took you to this guitar shop and you he, like, Hey, look at my kid. He's a kid. He plays guitar. And then the guitar shop owner, uh, recommended you go to the, was it the NAM music convention? Yeah. Well, that was, so I was working, I was working at, um, I, oh, sorry. I got people just like tech. It's like when it, when it rains, it just fires, you know, <laughs> but anyways, uh, so what happened was I was working at a stand. I was grateful for these opportunities. Uh, uh, there was a guy named Ray D Champlain who owned creative, uh, creative strings in, I want to say Newington. And I, he gave me a job when I was like, literally like, I don't know, 11, 12 years old, something like that. I was so Part of it was he didn't want to hire me initially because I was so little and my voice was so high that he was like, what, what can I do with this kid? You know? So my dad who did carpeting flooring, he ultimately went up to, he was like the guy that did all the flooring and Ray was like, yeah, I need to get this store done. And my dad's like, listen, I'll work, I'll do the, I'll cut you the deal, but you got to at least just, you know, I don't, even if it's not official, just let the kid come down for on Saturdays, let him just feel like he's working at the store or something like that. But my dad was so adamant that, you know, he just pushed the case, which was a great thing about my dad. He was so, um, he was just such a, a kind of a force of nature in that regard that the guy really didn't want to hire me, you know what I mean? And, you know, so he basically was like, okay, fine. You know? And so every Saturday I would get up and drive my bike, uh, rain or shine, didn't care. It was like a 40 minute drive. And I would drive to that store and it was like Disneyland. I mean, the guitars, and at least in the beginning of the day, <laughs> The guitars were so shiny and, oh, I loved it. You know what I mean? I'd walk in there and I'd be like, oh, what new guitars were in? And I got to kind of soak it all in because I was, uh, it was just being around that environment. You know what I mean? It was like, I just learned from being uh, subjected to it. I, there was all the latest, hottest players and they had all the tricks and I, I never would have figured this was pre-internet. So, you know, I didn't know how to do you know, dive bar squealies because I didn't, couldn't, you know, what is that? You know what I mean? And then I'd see somebody do it. And I'm like, that's it. You know what I mean? And, and uh, so from there, I worked there for like four years, but the crazy part was that I could only go so far there because, you know, and all these guys, these guys were phenomenal musicians that worked there. They were very much jazz based. And because they were so jazz based, I went the other way. I was rock based. I was like, it was almost like the war. It was like the, the East versus the West type thing. And they're like, yeah, you know, I'd bring in some new band, whatever it was. And they'd be like, yeah, it's good, but you got to listen to this, you know, Spyro Gyro shit. And I'm like, <laughs> well, that is very good too. But, but you know, this, you know, this is fucking ACDC homie. You know what I mean? And like, you know, so it was just, and we both had a mutual respect. It was, it was like a, a very pleasant war of like, you know, and in our own way, we were kind of, uh, bringing the next person up because we were like, so I was showing them like, you know, you know, here's some, you know, here's some Richie Blackmore. And they're like, well, here is, you know, some Al Demiola. And I'm like, yeah, but you got to get that, you know, race with the Spanish devil. That's when he's kicking ass. They're like, oh no, that's when he's just showing off. And I'm like, is he though? <laughs> you know? And uh, so anyways, that was creative. And I was grateful to have the opportunity, but because I was kind of just known as the kid that drove his bike on the weekends to come down. I think I was making like $5 a day or whatever it was. Um, I could only go so far there because there was also local guitar players that had more shine than I did. And, and, and they were really excited about them. And I was just kind of common fare. So at one point, my dad 
was buying something from Brian over at Brian Guitars. Uh, and he says, hey, man, my kid is really, you know, he's definitely, you know, he's, he's an exceptional player. You should hear him. And the guy was like, nah, nah, I don't want to, you know. So then at one point, my dad just brought me down. And he goes, listen, go in the corner and play. And he knew I always played loud. So I just went in the corner and I just started playing. I just grabbed whatever there was and, you know, no one could see me playing. And then the crazy part was when I was little, I would play and people would gather around because it wasn't, you know, we didn't have Instagram. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it was like, if you heard an, you know, a player that was kind of different than the norm, it, it drew attention. So I'm playing, there's people gathering around this, you know, this guy, Brian's going, who's playing? And my dad's like, yeah, that, that's my, that's my kid. You know what I mean? And so Brian, who just heard me before he even saw me was like, he really felt that I had something a little different than, than other people. So from there, Brian was like, listen, I've got an idea. And he says, uh, if you can get yourself out to a NAM show, which is a the NAM show for people who don't know is the National Association of Music Merchants. Um, and it, at the time it would happen bi-yearly, but really the big one was January. You'd fly out to Anaheim, California in January, or I think it was Nashville in, in the summer or something like that. I don't really remember. But um, so he says, listen, if you can get out there, there's this company, Ibanez, and they have some of the, they got like, that's like, this is the up and coming company. This was right, right before, this was right like when Steve I was kicking off, right? When all those like multicolored gems were going and they had Joe Satriani, they had Steve Vai, they were getting Paul Gilbert, you know, and uh, they said, listen, these guys are really kind of on their way up. And he goes, I, you know, know the artist relations guy because Brian was such a phenomenal businessman hmm. that he, for a store his size was doing like four times the numbers and then any of the big stores worth. So um, he says, listen, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to call a favor and I'm going to get you an appointment with this guy named Rich Lasner. And Rich Lasner was the artist relations guy for Hoshino or Ibanez. And uh, so I went back to Ray D. Champlain, which was the guy from creative. And I said, Hey, uh, you know, I, I want to go out to Nam. I'm going to buy my ticket. My parents gave me, you know, we had, we had nothing. I mean, I think the ticket was like 400 bucks, which at the time was like saying two grand, you know, for us, because we were literally just living, you know, not even month to month. It was like week to week. Um, but they, my parents got me the ticket and Ray was kind enough to let me kind of crash with, with, with them out there. You know what I mean? Which I was grateful, you know, he's like, yeah, do your thing. You know, I'm going to be out handling business. And, and uh, so I had a place to stay and I had a, a ticket and uh, I flew out to the NAM show and it was amazing. Cause I left, you know, dreary, cold California, sorry, Connecticut with like, you know, everybody's got, you know, the mall haircuts and the chains on their tires and the big fluffy jackets. And all of a sudden I'm in Los Angeles. And I'm like, and this was, keep in mind, this was like, kind of like, I wouldn't say the heyday of the hair metal, but it was definitely kind of towards the tail end, but still it was in full swing. So, you know, the guys got the hair puffed up, the ladies got it. I'm walking around, guys are walking around with two girls on each arm. I'm like, this is like, <laughs> you know, I just couldn't, you know, and, and, you know, it was just, and it was California. So everybody was good looking. Nobody needed a jacket, you know? And I was like, this place exists. What the <laughs> fuck? You know? And uh, so anyways, uh, I fly out there and on, it was Friday. It went, I, I flew out on a Friday. So it was Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It was really a four day show. And Really, back in the day, this was like the 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 heyday of those shows. This was, you know, this was where people would fly out to. It was kind of like a boat show for boats. Like if you want to see what's happening for the next year in the boat show, you go to the boat. You know, you you, mm -hmm. you, you go and see it. And so this was, like I said, pre-internet. So uh, we get out there, and um, 
So what would happen is everybody would fly out there. It was like an excuse to like get away from the families and everybody would just go bananas for four days. They'd start drinking on Thursday. Friday was the, was like, you know, was the, was the, was the pinnacle. And by Saturday, everybody was looking pretty, you know, pretty toasty. And by Sunday, it was crispy out there, you know? And uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so did you see a lot of like people that you recognize, like oh, hell, yeah, Paul Gilbert awesome. and all those people. Yeah. Yeah. I just, it was, well, keep in mind at the time, there was only three magazines. There was guitar player, guitar for the practicing musician and guitar world. And that was our internet at the time. That was our Instagram. That was yeah. our, our TikTok. you know, because right. you didn't know anything. You were so removed. You lived in the middle of Wisconsin somewhere. You didn't have, there was no uh, kind of um, no mecca of, of sorts to go to other than you just had to piece it together with what you knew and word of mouth and record stores. And Hey man, who's got the, can, can you get me a Tony McAlpine record? I, I saw his review in guitar player. You know, I, that's how I, I remember. That's how I found out about Tony McAlpine. I saw him in the back of the, the magazine. And then, you know, I would do whatever I could to try and find, anything that had Tony McAlpine on it. And, you know, and, and that was, that was the method then it wasn't like now where it's like, hold on, what, what's the WWW what, you know? And uh, so anyways, and it's a long story, but in short, I went there. And so what I was doing was on Friday, you know, I was just kind of on my own running wild there. So on Friday, I just started walking around and I would just walk into a booth and Hey, can I play that? And I was kind of like a kid and they were like, yeah, bucket, you know, I play it and I play it. <laughs> And then people would gather around because this was kind of at the time where, you know, that's what it was all about, the demonstrations. And so so I go to whatever booth and I'm playing the stuff and I've got a crowd and I'm like, holy, this is easy. You know, I'd play and the people were like, yeah, man, <laughs> keep playing, <laughs> you know, and they'd let me turn up and all that stuff. And so I'd say thanks. And I'd go to the next booth and I'd play and I'd get a crowd, you know. And so I just kind of went around. So I did that Friday, I did that Saturday. And what was happening was. It was great for the people at the booth because I was, you know, filling their booth and drawing attention to their stuff. But ultimately, it wasn't really doing much for me. You know what I mean? So I was like, eh, I was kind of digging it, but I was kind of realizing, all right, well, you know. And so the last thing I had was I had a, a card from Brian and at the back it says, uh, Hoshino, 11 o'clock, Rich Lasner. And so I go there at 11 o'clock and I was nervous. Uh, and I was so nervous, I forgot to pick. <laughs> I just was like, oh. Right. So I met Rich, and he was the nicest guy, just really nice. And he was totally like, everybody else was burnt out, but Rich was like totally on his A game. So I knew Rich was like a legit guy. He wasn't fucking around. Like he was real, real serious. Hold on, I got calls. It just never ends. So sorry about that. Um, and uh, so I met with Rich, and, and like I said, he was absolutely 100% like, you know, rock solid. And I was like, wow. And I really liked him. And so I played for him, but I was nervous. So I forgot to pick. So I just picked up one of the Ibanezes and I just started playing with my fingers because I was like, you know, got to make it work. And so started playing with my fingers. And I think he really, one, he liked the approach I took to it. And he liked that it was just at the time, you got to realize everybody was just a million miles an hour because that was, you know, what was in vogue. And I was kind of the opposite. I was almost like, almost like in direct contrast to that, you know, and I didn't have a pick. So it was, a, you know, this was, so I kind of just played, I did the best I could with what I had. And it was kind of like, you know, and my style's always kind of been what it was it, ever since it took me like about, I started playing when I was like nine. And by the time I was like 11, I kind of had the direction locked. And at that point it was just bringing in more influences and getting the technique better, but it was just weird. It just kind of came out of the gate that way. And, and the reality is the truth of the matter was I didn't really have the, the ability without putting a massive amount of effort into trying to sound like somebody else. And I was like, well, why am I going to work this hard to sound like something I'm not? Whereas my style just kind of came naturally. So 
it was like, once again, the path of least resistance, I just went down what worked for me. And that's how I uh, kind of developed it. And then at that point, it was just bringing in influences to expand the vocabulary and just getting better at the technique, you know, and of course you had to have some of the, 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 of the, of the moment type style guitar work. Cause you always, you're always a product of your environment, you know, for the most part. And so I played for Rich and Rich was like, okay, listen, he goes, I, I kind of really like where you're going with this. He goes, but I'm in a bit of a dilemma because you have no exposure. So it's tough. I can't just, you know, sign you as an artist and endorse you because, you know, and he explained to me is every endorsement is really just, it's a give and a take. Like, you know, we provide product and, you know, an advertising, but you in turn bring, you know, a new kind of community to our product and you bring more exposure, awareness, demonstration through your demonstration, through your, your playing, you, uh, you know, that's, that's what we kind of benefit from it. And I'm like, yeah, that makes total sense. So he says, but listen, I, I don't want to, you know, here's what I'm going to do. So he just like right on his, 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 and I was talking, I'm like, Hey, what if I did like a demonstration thing? We were just like kind of spitballing right there. And I was very, you know, I, I was very kind of like, uh, I don't want to say, I was more like kind of like world savvy or street savvy because I was definitely not from an academic background. I was more from a, you know, you know, go do it to go actually do it and then figure it out background, if that makes sense. And because I was just, you know, I was, had so much exposure to dealing with different people. Cause I would work with my dad and he would do carpeting. So we would go in different houses and hmm. I would learn just to kind of read the room and work with different. Some people were very particular one way other people were. And hmm. I just kind of at a very early age would just kind of, kind of understood human nature kind of pretty pretty fairly reasonably. And so that was kind of a strong asset. And so in talking to Rich, we were kind of just spitballing. I was like, yeah, I understand that. It makes total sense. I said, but what if I was like, you know, I'm like, what if I did a demonstration? What if I, so I was kind of started throwing things out to try and give him something. And he was also kind of doing the same. So we kind of came up with on the spot, at least that's how I remember it was that he's like, well, here's what I'll do. He goes, I'm going to send you a guitar and just take it and do some demonstrations with it. And then like, which was a cassette tape at the time, and then send it to me and let's see what we can do. And to be honest with you, all I heard was, I'm going to send you a guitar, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So true to his word, about two weeks later, a uh, package shows up and it was, I think, in whatever the, it was like an RG 550, you know, just like your basic, you know, kind of, you know, Strat style guitar. And I remember it had a, a smaller neck than I was used to. So I had to adjust that. But so from there, what ends up happening was, and that's all I needed. I knew the door was already kicked open. I knew I had a, I had a connection and the guy was cool. And so I went in my garage and I would, you know, I was always self-recording and doing that stuff because honestly, I couldn't find anybody in my local community that was, was of even close to my age that could really, you know, get the job done. So at the time I was playing with a, a drummer kind of close to my age, a guy named Tom Pulsey. He was a great drummer. And uh, he was, I think, from Newington as well. And he was kind of more at the time was much more of a jazz background, but he could, you know, he could, he could do all the like hot for teacher stuff and like that. And so when he was, I mean, just, he still is, I'm sure I, I've lost con uh, contact with him, but um, great, great uh, drummer. So in essence, he came over, I recorded him with whatever I had. I think I had a Clarion four track. And so I made these demos. I'd record him on the drums and I'd play the bass and I'd play the rhythm guitar. And then I basically made these like two and a half to three minute just straight out of the gate demonstration songs. I was like, there's no, wasn't doing guitar themes, none of that stuff, because to be honest with you, I never wanted to do that stuff. I just was kind of like a brawler on the guitar as far as the approach. It was just, I want to pick this thing up. 
I want to just knock it out of the park and get out of there. You know what I mean? I, I wasn't, I, I don't think guitar themes sound that good, to be honest with you. They just sound like, like you just, you know, like you were missing an instrument. So you like did like a mock-up with a guitar. They never, the way guitar is expressed, it never quite comes off like a vocal track or anything like that. And I always felt that since day one, but it was what I had. So I had, I had him do the drums, sent him on his way, did all the, you know, bass stuff. And so I did it and I sent in a song and it was just like, get down to business, get it done. And, um, and I sent to Rich, Rich was like, dude, this is great. I love it. You know what I mean? And he goes, yeah, this is, this works out cool. And then I said, he goes, Hey, can you do me a favor? Can you do a second one? And I was like, okay. You know? So then I did a second one, you know, a couple of weeks later, I sent it out. He goes, I love, I like it better than the first one. I was like, cool. Then he's like, Hey man, is there any shot you can do a third one? And at, at this point, you know, the, the, um, <laughs> the shine of a new guitar is, was wearing off. I was like, damn, kind of earning this thing here. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I like the guitar, but you know, okay. You know, so I did a third one, you know, and I, I sent the third one in and he's like, okay, yeah. He goes, so he took him and he sent him out. And then, so what happened was at the time I made this demo and, and I did a weird order. I sent, I, I put the, like, almost like the most non-aggressive song first. I almost like started with a ballad because I just was like, ah, let's try something different. I was trying to kind of break through the clutter and all the, um, all the, uh, what do you call it? All the, uh, uh, there was just a lot of chatter out there with guitar players. Every guy who had better hair than the next one, and they had mm -hmm. cooler, brighter guitars and they were faster. And, you know, and it's like, I, I can't, I'm not going to go toe for toe against the Paul Gilbert. That's not going to work for me at all. That's going to not work out well for me, you know? So, uh, so I, uh, so I kind of just did everything kind of very different than what was going on. So I start this thing with almost like a ballad and then it goes to a more aggressive one. Then I end with a shuffle and I put it out there. And so what happens is this tape, kind of starts floating around the industry. What I didn't realize is Rich had knew everybody because everybody, it's a very small industry. He knew, you know, one guitar player knows the ex, the other guitar player. And at the time, uh, well, which is what still with Hoshino, there was DiMarzio pickups and they were, they were the exclusive ones. Uh, and even though I was, al I've always been a Seymour Duncan guy, cause that's just what my ears liked the best, but I, you know, I liked the Ibanez and I liked the DiMarzios. They were cool, but he sent a tape the same tape over to this guy, Steve Blucher at DiMarzio and Blucher liked the tape and Blucher turned this guy into John sticks at guitar for the practicing, uh, musician magazine. And, um, and I, unbeknownst to me, I didn't realize this at the time, but the magazine was, uh, having, they were trying to launch a guitar label because they figured, Hey, they were the biggest of all the three magazines. And they figured, Hey, if we, do this guitar, you know, label, it would be great because we have like a built-in audience. And so John sticks got it and they called me and they said, Hey man, is, is, is this you playing guitar? And cause I was very young. I was like, you know, I think I was, I was maybe 15 when I did it, you know, and like, you know, 15 and a half or whatever it was. And I just kept sending it in and at the time they, there was no video to go with it. So, uh, and I said, yeah, you know, and he says, well, you know, they, we basically started, I sent it in, like it got FedEx to him or something like that. I remember like it arrived and like an hour later, I got a phone call because you could set it for like 10 AM delivery. You could pay extra. And of course I was so eager for the opportunity. I, I paid the extra. And um, so in short, this guy, John sticks heard it. And he, that was, and I guess I just fit the perfect mold because that's who they wanted to launch. They were real concerned about the first guy that they come out with because they felt mm. if they came out with some weak product out of the gate, no one was going to take the, 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 the label serious. So they held out for a year, I guess, to find it. And, uh, and then my tape came across their desk. And, and then from there, it kind of 
it kind of bounced off, but not wow. to go too far on a tangent, but that's how it all began. So then how did you come up with the plaid guitar? Cause that was a big uh, part of your trademark. I think like that you, all your guitars had the plaid stuff on, and then you had the album that was plaid. Yeah. Uh, that was, I was in Japan with Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker. And uh, I showed up on, I don't know, whatever day, let's say on a Monday by Wednesday, uh, somebody shows up at the gig with an exact replica of my guitar to sign. And it was like, you know, it was like a, it wasn't, you know, painted weird, but it was like a, you know, I had different parts on it, different neck, different color pickups because I was an artist. So they would give me things that you couldn't commonly get, you know? And then two days later, I'm signing the exact guitar. I mean, like it was literally, they had the scratches in it, everything. It was like the guy I think made it, may have, must've took a picture with me on day one. And by day three, he's got the guitar, real nice guy, you know? And, um, I signed the guitar and I was like, geez, you know, and then, so what was happening, of course, at the moment, you know, Van Halen was the top gun. It was, you know, Van Halen, Steve Vai, Ingve, all the, you know, your, your top, your, you know, was kind of running the ruling the roost there. So what I liked about uh, Van Halen is he had such an instantly recognizable guitar. The second you saw that, that multi-striped guitar, you were like, got it. And I wanted something that was instantly as recognizable, you know, uh, Zach Wilde had the bullseye guitar. I think, you know, or maybe it was, maybe this was even before that. I, I honestly, I'm getting older. I don't remember all the details, but, um, so I was literally, um, one day I was like, all right, I got to come up with something. And I was sitting in the supermarket. I came back from Japan. I remember thinking, geez, you know, I'm going to, if they're going to copy me, which they are, people are going to copy. There's no way around it. You know, I said, well, if they're going to do it, they're going to earn it. You know, it's kind of my theory. So I was sitting in a supermarket and I was just standing next to a guy with this big plaid shirt. And I'm like, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. So I went down to the local, you know, betting barn or whatever it was. And uh, I decided, Hey, I want to, I want to have a plaid guitar. And I called the guys at Ibanez. I said, I want to have a guitar that's plaid so that whenever you see it, you'll know it's me. And I could kind of run with it. And uh, that's honestly how it started. And it was hard, very hard for them to do because they, this guy, I think the original artist that I worked with was a guy named Pedro Cruz, who I think was the gentleman that was working with Ibanez at the time. And the hard part was because the guitar is not a flat surface. It's, it's, you know, it's got bevels and shapes and shifts and stuff like that, that it was hard to get it all to line up. It was really hard. It was very, I remember they were, <laughs> it was definitely a challenge, but uh, he did it, got it done and it was cool. And then that just became like a, a thing. You know, then I started doing my cabinets that color because it was just something that was going to help me stand out. I was just trying to find a way of breaking out from the pack. And that's honestly, if you guys want to hear a crazy story, that's how the plaid converse came out. I remember at one point there was like this fashion wave of plaid. Yeah. And it happened because the drummer, Joe Franco, I would work with him and he always had the coolest converse. I was like, dude, where he'd have almost like tinfoil converse. I'm like, where did you get those? He goes, Oh, I got a friend over at converse. He just says, if you send it to him, he'll make you whatever you want. And he goes, I'll put a call in for you. And he did. And the guy's name was Pete Dillon. Nice guy. And I talked to him on the phone. I said, Hey man, I, I, I use these plaid guitars. Can you make me plaid converse to kind of like, you know, match it. And I don't know what I was going for. I don't know if I was just going to like, in my mind, I was going to turn into one big, like tartan fool or whatever. But anyways, uh, he says, yeah, he goes, but here's the deal. You got to go get the fabric, you know? And so I go down to the same place, the, the old bedding barn with the blue haired ladies. And it was kind of tough because you couldn't make the pattern too big or it didn't look plaid. And if you made it too small, it just looked like a checkerboard, you know, and some colors work better. So I go down there and I pick like, you know, three, four different things. And I send it to him and I didn't hear anything for like, I don't know, two months. And I'm like, ah, I guess, I guess he just blew it off, whatever. Then one day, you know, package shows up and it's like, you know, six, seven pairs of these plaid sneakers. And I was like, oh, shit, those are awesome. 
And then I talked to Peter Dillon about, I don't know, two months later. And he goes, I, I just wanted to thank you, man. I'm like, thank me. I'm thank you, dude. I appreciate the sneakers. He goes, no, no, you understand. My bosses came in and they saw those things on the bench. And they thought that was the coolest thing. And that's where the plaid sneakers came from, from Converse. Wow. Yeah. And he goes, oh yeah, they made millions off that. So and you, did not, you get any of that money? You no, designed how to it. Not, how to not make money with another terrible financial decision from <laughs> Lucina, be the name of uh, my book. Um, so that's funny. Yeah. Well, you know. so you mentioned the cream thing, Jack Bruce and Ginger Bra- Baker. I don't think I even knew about that until I started doing research for this interview. But um, so did they call it cream or was it just like. I think it was just Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker. They didn't have the, okay. they didn't have the third ingredient, which was, you know, the, the, the. The, the the Eric Clapton, Eric Clapton. yeah. So how did they get you? They, they is this after you had already done a, put out a solo album? Yeah, I did the first record. And, and keep in mind, what I did is I signed a one record deal, which was kind of that was another thing Brian was really good at. It's unheard of. No one signs a one record deal because why would they? Why would they want to make you a, a known entity and then have you bail onto the next thing? You know, mm-hmm. uh, because you know Brian was really good with his tactics. He kind of went back to us and said, "Hey, listen. In all fairness, we understand that, but." you know, you guys aren't a proven label. So why would we want to like lock ourselves into something that may not get out of the gate? So we kind of just kind of, you know, they mutually kind of agreed that, Hey, we'll do one record. And if it does well, we'll discuss it. You know? So I did the one record and all, and all I, um, all I really wanted to do was, was ultimately just use it. My whole point for doing it was basically to use it as a, uh, kind of like a calling card, a business card. Like at the time, everybody had like cassettes that were hand done, you know, and, and some black and white photo. And all of a sudden, this was an opportunity for me to have a CD, which was like, damn, <laughs> you know. And uh, so I did I did that and it worked out great. I did the first record and then it was working because I could go back to Ibanez and say, hey, guys, listen, now that I'm going to do this record, I can, you know, I can feature your, your guitar on the album now. And this album is going to be on this it's going to be promoted by this guitar magazine which is the most popular guitar magazine now i had some i had some i had a little bit of weight behind me as far as negotiating and and it worked out great because now rich is like okay we'll sign you as an artist you know and then we'll promote you and we'll tie in promoting you with the record so everybody kind of got on board i demarzio got on board at the time ibanez got on board whatever string company i was with i think it was Dario at the time and then so i had like this multi kind of like little network. And so really what at the time, what was the most advantageous of the endorsements was not the actual product itself, because to be honest with you, I was going to buy the product that I liked anyways, or, you know, or at least use the product that I liked. So really what was of most value was the, um, was the endorsement because that would put, would shine some, some light on you. So what happened was I was in the magazine for the, you know, I would stagger the ads, but I would be in the magazine for the when the label came out, I'd be in the magazine for Ibanez, I'd be in the magazine. So what was happening was, you know, on this one platform that people would kind of use as the, as a gauge of what's going on, I was getting, you know, exposure. So because of the exposure and honestly, because this guy, John sticks was, had, was friends with the manager of Jack Bruce. That's really, it was kind of a twofold thing because one wouldn't have probably happened without the other, but John uh, sticks, which was the, the guy that I worked with on the record, um, was knew those guys. He says, Hey, listen, I've got this young kid. He's coming up, you know, and he's in all the magazines, you know, he, he's, you know, he's young, he's fresh. You should check him out. So I went to a cat. It was like kind of like a closed cattle call of sorts. They had all the heavy hitters uh, from all the new on the New York scene came into play, you know, all these guys from other bands. And, um, and I was doing a photo shoot at the day 
over in, I think I want to say Staten Island, I think, uh, with DeMar, wherever DeMarzio was, I was doing a photo shoot. So I got like hair and makeup on, I'm doing the photo shoot and I they get a call there. Hey, listen, they're holding auditions today. You got to get, you got to, you got to get out early and you got to get over there because I got you a slot, uh, for an audition. I'm like, and I had my guitar because I was using it for the photo shoot. So I was like, awesome. So I cut the photo shoot short. I hop in the car, I go over. And of course that day, I think the president was in town. So and it was held like midtown at like SIR. And so I did real good until I got like about two blocks away. And it was just gridlock. I couldn't even park the sure. car where to park the car. And I'm just stressing out because I'm trying to make the audition. I got fucking makeup on. I mean, it was just like, ah, uh, I look like, you know, an extra from Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like it was just like, uh, I got a blue mohawk at the time. And, you know, and so anyways, and I'm just, so finally, I just, as soon as I can get to a parking lot, I parked a car. I'm you know, hustling down to a couple blocks to get to the place. I show up, I'm like two hours late and they, everybody's pissed because like, you know, I was the last guy there. The president of Epic was there. He wanted to go to lunch, you know, and uh, it was just a catastrophe. So I roll in, I got the guitar, I'm sweating, you know, and uh, they, they had an amp and Jack was real cool. It was just Jack Bruce at the time. And he says, Hey man, do you know any of my tunes? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, no, I don't, you know, and he's like, <laughs> He's like, all right, you know, and I said, and of course I was like, but hey, listen, my dad listens to you guys all the time. You know, if you just play something, I'll figure it out. And he's just like, what the fuck, you know? So anyways, and I didn't realize this about at the time, but Jack kind of loves controlled chaos. And I didn't really realize that at the time. So I just walk in, you know, I know I'm already out. I know this, I'm just doing this as a courtesy. So I don't come off like I didn't show up. I walk right. in, there's like some bullshit JCM 800 with no fucking gain on it to play. And I'm just like, Jesus, fuck, you know? So I turn the amp to its side, you know, and I just literally take every knob and I just open it up wide open because I figured that way I'll get the most gain out of it and I can play it, you know, and it won't blare them out. So literally out of the movies, he, I go, just play something, we'll figure it out. And he liked it. He's like, all right, cool. You know, and there was a, there, you know, so he just starts playing something and I start l- laying into it. And of course the fucking tubes in the amp arc, because I had turned everything up and it was a rental amp. It just, you know, and literally out of the fucking movies, the amp starts smoking, you know, and I'm just like, you gotta be kidding me. This audition could not go any worse, you know? And I'm just sitting there like, it was just uncomfortable and silent. And so they wheel the amp out and they go and they get a guy and they bring another one in and and like no one's saying anything. And it's just like, all right. So we just jam on some stuff and, you know, I just throw what I got at it at the time, you know, and I'm trying to like interject my style with the current stuff. And I'm like, you know, so we do, we jam for like, I wasn't, you know, five, six, seven minutes. It wasn't much, you know, just on some, I don't even know what it was, just some groove, you know? And, uh, and they're like, okay, thanks. And I'm like, guys, I really appreciate the time. Thank you very much. And I just like, you know, back out of the room <laughs> and, you know, and I'm like, whoo, that was uncomfortable. And uh, I head home. And when I get home, there's a uh, voicemail on my machine from, from the management. They're like, hey, this is such and such from the management. Um, yeah, Jack would like you to come in on Tuesday. Uh, we're going to do, uh, we're going to try some stuff. Uh, but he's, he, he's told me this time, he says, learn the fucking songs. <laughs> you know, and so they gave me like three songs to learn. I came in and uh, at that point, you know, we were good and, and that was it. They gave me this, if I remember correctly, they were kind of just gave me the gig on the spot and it was just going to be Jack Bruce. And we were going to do like these, um, you know, like club tour, like, you know, whatever, right. 350 seaters, whatever it was, you know, nothing just like a club tour from, from the 
starting at the East Coast of the West. And I was like, fuck, yeah, this is great because I had never toured. I'd never really been in that many bands at that point. I was in a like a, you know, like a like a hair, local hair metal band or something like that because it was the thing to do. But even that was not for very long. Hmm. And um, so and then as we're getting into it, so I'm just going to go on tour with Jack Bruce. I'm like the guy from Cream, the bass player from Cream. Cool, you know, and then the management gets Ginger Baker on board. Now it's a whole different game. They got Jack and Ginger to play together, which is two thirds of like, you know, the, the, the Uber super group from the late sixties, early seventies or whenever it was. And to be honest with you, all this is kind of going over my head because I'm like, you know, dude, let's do some fucking guns and roses. Let's do some. <laughs> and, that's kind of where my head's at. and they're like, what the, you know, yeah. so I didn't want to play in like a group that like, you know, my dad was into, I'm like, fuck that, you know, but, um, but I liked the music. I realized, ah, this music, these guys are good. I get why these people liked them. And, um, and I didn't really, the crazy part is as much as I, as, as much as I understood how good Clapton was, I mean, it, I just approached it totally different. I just was like going hmm. completely on another take because it just wasn't, it wasn't of my time. You know what I mean? I, right. was, I was kind of doing my only thing. So it sounds like that's what they wanted though. Right. I, yeah, that Jack loved it. What I didn't realize, because I keep in mind, I, I just walked in, met him for five minutes, and you know, you know, I didn't realize that Cream was really kind of like, kind of like a jazz band on somebody with a blues guitar player, and like it was kind of weird. And like, so I, in my own way, was like almost like the perfect fit for him because I mm -hmm. knew nothing. About, well, he it was different. They were schooled. I was totally unschooled, and I was just kind of like just so wild because I didn't know any better. I just came in like, kind of like, you know, almost like you pick a dog up off the streets and it doesn't know anything. It's just a fucking, you know, rampant running dog. And that was kind of like, they kind of liked that. It was so, I was so left of center for anybody because everybody that auditioned was great. They all knew the parts and they played them note for note. And they, you know, each guy was better than the next. And I just come in and I'm, you know, fucking doing dive bombs and pick slides and, you know, fucking, they're just like, what the fuck? This controlled kid is chaos. Like you said. Yeah, he loved it. He was like, this it. is perfect, you know? And keep in mind, it was also for his solo record. This wasn't for a cream product. We were going to do some cream time, stuff, but yeah. it was really yeah. for his solo record. So he was all over it. Enter Ginger Baker, and that was interesting. That was an interesting dynamic. So, and the stories go on. There's so many stories that it's crazy, and I've got some that are so off the walls, I don't even know if people would believe them. I mean, they're just oh, so... Oh, give me at least one. Jeez. Uh, okay. Well, one is... One starts like this. Uh, he comes in, uh, he flies into JFK and he had his, 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 he collapse. He, uh, he collapses in the, um, in the airport because his appendix bursts, you know? Oh, so shit. I get a call. We were supposed to rehearse. So what happened was we were going to play with ginger. And then all of a sudden the, um, the tours went from like these kind of like smaller clubs to bigger clubs. I was like, all right, that's cool. Because all of a sudden you've got, now it was Jack Bruce, it was Jack Bruce featuring, you know, Jack Bruce and Ginger, Jack with well, a Jack Bruce band featuring Ginger Baker. I was, I think that was, so every, all the cream fans were like, Oh heck yeah, this is going to be awesome. And um, so, uh, so he comes in right. And he collapses. So, and then to drag him off to the hospital. So then the guy's like 50 at the time, you know, 51, whatever it was. So then I get a call. Hey, uh, the, the, the tour is on hold right now and rehearsal has been canceled. So I'm like, well, there, there went that gig. You know what I mean? <laughs> sure. You know, Because the drummer collapsed and I didn't know what it was. The drummer collapsed in the, in the, in the airport. And I was like, all right, well, easy come, easy go. You know? And then I get a call like two days later. No, no, no. Tour is back on. We're just going to postpone it a week because the drummer had appendicitis and they, he had surgery. I'm like, I'm pretty sure you got to give it more than a week to after, but whatever. Okay. So, 
Cut to week later, we're back at SIR and I walk in the room and the room's cold. And there's this guy by himself with like a long trench coat. And he's like, literally, I want to say he's like gray in color. I was like, holy shit. And uh, he's like smoking a pipe in the back and he's like, kind of like this. And he's got like this long, like trench coat on and he's like in the corner. Like, I mean, this was out of the fucking movies, man. <laughs> I mean, the guy looks like fucking Nosferatu. I was like, holy <laughs> shit. You know, and he did not look good. I mean, he looked, you know, so I walk over and I'm like, you know, I go, you know, are you ginger? I'm, I'm blues. It's nice to meet you. I go to shake his hand. He just looks at me and he's like, just doesn't even say anything like a half grown. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, oh shit. You know what I mean? So I'm like, all right. Yeah. You know, I made an effort. You know what I mean? And that's it. So I just go to the other end of the room, you know, and it's the room's fucking cold. Like, it's just weird. And then Jack comes in, he goes, Hey blues. And Jack's always very jovial and very warm. Very, 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 he has a very kindness and warmth about him. So it was very in contrast to the, to this guy that's fucking, you know, this gargoyle in the fucking corner there. I'm like, <laughs> Holy shit. You know? Um, so uh, that's it. And that's, a, and, and then there was, and we had, um, we had Bernie Worrell keyboards to, from parliament Funkadelic and we had Gary Cooper the also. So, and I didn't know any of these guys. I didn't know they were from Parliament Funkadelic. I was like, hey, man, they were just cool dudes. Like, they were yeah. just nice guys. Like, and that's kind of what I liked about music. It didn't matter. Like, no one gave a shit. I didn't know who anybody was because I was just too young, you know. And then they didn't know who I was. But everybody grooved instantly because it was just merit-based. Like, you know, I heard I heard Gary sing. I'm like, that guy sings that. I heard fucking Bernie playing V3. I'm like, oh, shit. This is going to be awesome, you know. And so the band clicks instantly, you know, and then there's fucking ginger. And the guy literally is like, can barely hold sticks. Like we can barely get through the songs. And I'm like, Holy fuck, this is going to be interesting. So, <laughs> and this, you know, it, this all makes sense. So at the time, I think there was a drummer. I want to say his name was Tom Goss. He was a young guy, kind of like me, a little bit older than me, but not, not by much. And so the plan was ginger was refused. And so I didn't realize the dynamic between Jack and Ginger at the time. I didn't realize they were like an old married couple and, and it was, it was toxic at times, you know what I mean? And so Ginger refused to do any of Jack's solo material, which presents a problem because we're out there promoting a record on Epic, which is his solo right. record. I want to say it was a hand, the hands of time, I believe, or hands of time or something like that. So we're in a dilemma. We got a drummer that doesn't want to play and is really in no shape. He's definitely was in no shape to play the new stuff for sure. I mean, he just was like rough for that, you know? Um, so we ended up bringing on the second drummer. So we traveled with two drummers and the plan was we would go out and we would play the, uh, or no, that wasn't it. Okay. That wasn't the plan. No, that didn't happen yet. I take it back, back it up, back it up, back it up, back it up. Okay. <laughs> that, that happened after this first gig. Okay. So okay. a little out of context. So we started doing the new stuff wasn't really working out, but we had to do it. And the cream stuff after about, after about like day two, we only rehearsed for like literally maybe my memory's off, but I want to say like three days tops. Like I, like we didn't even know the shit. I didn't know the shit. They knew the stuff so well because you know, it was cream stuff. They didn't even sure. need rehearse. They were just rehearsing for us. And I was like, Jesus, you know, we had to learn like whatever, 10, 15 songs ever it was. And they weren't hard. It was just, I just wasn't familiar with it. Cause I didn't listen to it. Um, so anyways, so here's the first gig. So this, I mean, this, Drummer is not looking good. I'm just like, man, I don't know if this guy's going to make the tour. It was not, you know. So anyways, we get in this bus. I show up late because it was in Manhattan. And once again, the traffic, I was in Connecticut. It was a two and a half hour drive to get in. We show up, we leave Midtown Manhattan. We get on this bus. I'm late. And my dad pulls in late. We grab my stuff. We throw it. I just hop on the bus. Everybody's on the bus and they're all giving me a hard time because I was like, whatever, half hour late. No, everybody's pissed. But anyways, I get on the bus. 
And I said, fuck this. I'm just going to go to sleep because we were going to have our first gig was going to be in Washington, D.C. It was a small, smaller club. And I said, OK, and it's a bunch of older dudes and they're all sitting there smoking around the bus. And I'm like, I didn't smoke. So I was like, I'm just going to go to sleep in my bunk. And I remember the, the guy that the bus driver was like, hey, sleep feet first. And I'm like, why? He goes, well, if we crash, you won't break your neck. I'm like, all right, good to know. So, <laughs> yeah, so I go, I literally take the guitar and I was late. So I had two gig bags. I think I just went to sleep with the two gig bags like this. I was like, fuck it, you know. And I wake up about an hour later and I can't like just fucking smoke everywhere. I'm like, holy fuck. I pop up on like the bus and I walk out and it was literally like Cheech and Chong. Those guys were all sitting there and it was closed and there was so much fucking smoke because they were all smoking like they would roll their own cigarettes and Ginger would smoke this cherry bark. I remember it was cherry bark tobacco. It was like fucking like it was like putting your face next to like a fucking exhaust pipe. I mean, it was insane. And I'm just like, holy shit, this is not going to work and work for me. I cannot spend 30 days on a fucking coffin of smoke you know so so instantly i'm like what the fuck guys this is yeah i know i'm the new guy i know i'm the low guy on the totem pole i understand that you guys are the shit i'm not understood but fuck this you know what i mean you know because i was still i was just scrappy yeah it's just my 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 my, i wasn't you know i didn't give a shit i was like there's no fucking way i'm gonna do this you know i mean that's just too much so they are like cool cool they crack open the window and i realized the bulk of it was ginger's fucking pipe man that shit was like it was terrible so he and i are instantly we never you know we never gelled out of the gate you know from the from the from the first part so you know so every time he was kind of one way i was just like more that way so we just kind of Mm -hmm. you know so anyways so I get off the bus and I'm like, fuck this guys. There's no way I'm going to do this, you know? And so they're like, all right, we'll work it out. We, so we go to do the first gig. So now this is where the story kicks in. It's pretty sweet. We go to do the first gig and we didn't do sound check because, you know, we were late and I don't, I don't think, I don't think we even halftime did sound check. These guys were so professional. They didn't even need it. They just, okay. they knew their shit so well. Sound check was, they just set the set. They just set their, their instruments and go, you know? And I was like, okay, you know, didn't know the set. There was no set list, you know? we maybe played together three times and you know so we get out there and okay ladies and gentlemen introducing the jack bruce band with ginger baker and what happened was let me set it up there was a club and then there was like a i want to say a uh what's the top part like a like a not like a landing but almost like uh i don't even know what to call it uh it was almost like a deck that surrounded, it was almost like a top floor that surrounded, okay. the but it was, it went out so far that when you're in the back, it was really kind of almost hard to see the stage because it was such an extended thing. It was like, mm. I could play guitar. I could almost like maybe a foot or two reach up and touch somebody's foot. Like it was like, almost Weird. like blues has that hot. Yeah. It was kind of cool. It was cool because people could like, you had people really close to you and they were yeah. right on top of you. It was really cool. It was in Washington. I forget the name of the club. The place held out on maybe 400 people. But um, and it was sold out. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's if I remember correctly, it was sold out. So we start playing, and it's like one, two, three, four, and I'm like playing, and something is way off. Now I will say, admittedly, we were very, very loud because I just by nature, because of the way I played guitar, I didn't. They didn't have. Uh, I didn't have master volume amps. I just had old Marshalls, and I would just crank them up, and that was the sound, you know. And the more gain you wanted, the louder you would get them, and that's just kind of. Even though we still had master volume amps at this time, I just always had that approach. So for whatever reason, I would always open up the power section and just tap into the preamp section a lot. So it was always loud. That was the way it always sounded better. Anytime I went the opposing way, it just sounded thin. And I never liked it and I never felt I played as good. So I always just kind of went that way. So we were loud. Jack was loud. I was loud. That part is absolutely, you know, we were loud. Um, but 
we're playing and I can't hear the fucking drums. I'm like, I'm so I'm like looking down. I've got very few. I think I have like a wah pedal on the ground, like stepping on the wah pedal. I'm like checking my knobs, looking back at my amp. Everything's good. I look over to the Jack. Jack's fucking with his bass and we look at each other and we're like, you know, we were kind of, our minds were in the same spot. Like something is off and we can't figure out what the fuck is going on. And then simultaneously as I, as Jack and I look at each other, we look back and we see Ginger sitting there with sticks in his ears and he's like screaming and he's got sticks sticking out of his ears, you know, and I can't tell what he's saying. And I'm like, Oh shit, maybe his appendix broke again. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, Holy fuck, you know? And I'm looking at Jack and, 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 and we just keep playing because we're not going to stop playing And Jack. And he's just screaming. He's like, he, these guttural howls. And he's basically like, you know, we realize he's saying it's too loud. It's too loud. Like, you know, he basically felt it was too loud. So he chose not to play drums. So we do oh. the whole first song with no drums. And <laughs> but what's happening is because of the way the place is laid out, the people, the people on the front and the top can all see it because they realize the guys are playing, but the people in the back can't see it because of that big overhang. Oh. So the people in the back are like, turn the drums up turn the drums up. And I said, this chant's going, you know, and what happened was this, this, our tour manager, which was a guy named David Colvin, which was also the um, sound engine was also the, the, the sound guy was hitting all the buttons, like trying to figure out because he couldn't necessarily, oh. you know, he didn't, I don't know if he didn't, he just, no one thought the drummer wouldn't play was the moral story. So <laughs> hitting the buttons, he had hit one of the solo buttons where he's allowed to talk to us through the PA and it comes out and that's how okay. we do soundtrack. And I distinctly remember him saying, fuck, if the drummer would fucking play, I could turn him up and it comes through the whole PA and shit. Like, you know, Oh shit! <laughs> yeah. So that was the first song. That was the first time I ever played out with those guys. That was the first time I ever went on tour. That was the first. So ginger, uh, I think, I, I think he agreed to do only the cream songs at that point. And he would, we only did like very few songs and we had to turn down, which we didn't, you know what I mean? And then at the end of the, at the end of the, the night, ginger gets in a, uh, he was traveling with his his wife at the time. They rent a car and they take off. So now we have no drummer, and uh, we had to send the police to go find him. And the Jesus. tour was canceled. So I literally called my parents. I'm like, "Hey guys, yeah, uh, I think I'm just gonna take a bus home. You know what I mean? And uh, and they're just gonna ship wow. my gear separately. And that was night one. And that was kind of <laughs> each story just kind of builds on that and wow. they just get crazier and crazier. Uh, and that was some of my touring stories. Wow, that is crazy. So then we, I gotta, I've been asking you like, I don't know, 20, 30 years to ask you these questions about poison. So what happened with poison? So, cause what I remember initially was that they, they auditioned you and Richie Kotzen. Correct. And Brett said, uh, blues was great. And then, uh, but I just gelled more with Richie. And then later when Richie, they kick Richie out, they bring you on then blues or Brett says, uh, uh, I originally we wanted blues, but he, he was just too young to take on the road. But then I heard you tell the story and it's like totally different. So why don't you? Yeah, tell I mean, I don't, once again, I, I don't I'm not saying his their reasons are their reasons, you know. Yeah. And uh, but my perspective was a little different. Now, keep in mind, Richie and I. We knew each other because we, you know, yeah. both Ibanez guys and, and still to this day, we talk not, not a lot, but I, I, you know, we talk, I just talked to him a, a couple of weeks back and, you know, he's just, of course, super talented guy. And, you know, we've always we've always gotten along really, really well. You know, I think there was just a mutual, you know, on my part, I really respected his skill set, and, and he's just honestly, he's been always been very nice 
uh, he's a very good person. You know what I mean? So, um, well, and I definitely remember like, cause I had all those guitar magazines and it was like you and him were definitely in those magazines all the time. Oh, yeah. Like, even yeah. though I never heard your music because I, I, I couldn't buy every CD, but I knew of you too, because I would see your, your faces all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And he was, I think he was like, not far. He was only a couple hours away from me, you know? So, mm-hmm. so uh, we just traveled in the same circles. We were both Ibanez guys and we were both eventually Laney guys. So we, you know, we'd always, you know, we'd, it was always, you know, it was always cool. And um, so I didn't, I didn't realize that it was just me and him. So what ended up happening was uh, basically this, I was living in Connecticut at the time and uh, I had heard that there there was an issue with there, so of course I was reaching out trying to get as many trying to get as many people just trying to get in that camp. And actually, the person that was really responsible for getting me in the door was Rudy Sarzo, believe it or oh, not. Oh, I had him on yeah. the show. Nice guy. The nicest of guys. I mean, dude, it's Rudy's such a nice guy that if anyone has anything bad to say, you instantly know it's the person <laughs> that's saying it that's full of shit because he's just the nicest guy you're going to run into and super talented. And, and just like, you know, just, I, I mean, I, I couldn't say enough things about him to be honest with you. Um, but he basically, I think threw my name out there and they're like, Hey, you should, you should get blues to come in. And he, I think, you know, Rudy thought I'd be a good fit for that. So ultimately they brought me out. I flew out. I want to say two times. I flew out one time and I was still with Jack at the time. So it was an interesting predicament, but I really, I was with Jack at that point, probably about five years. I think I was like 20 or 21. So I think I went on the road with Jack when I was 16, you know, maybe 17, but I want to say 16. I honestly don't remember. I'd have to, you know, definitely at least 17 maybe. But um, so maybe I was with Jack for like three, four years. Because at this point it was Jack and Ginger. Then it became Jack and Simon Phillips. Then it was Jack and Gary Husband. And so we got all these amazing drummers. I've been super, you know, what talk about a great gig. I mean, he played with the best of the best musicians. And so... I got to play with everybody from Ginger Baker, Simon Phillips, Gary Husband. I got to play with all these different drummers and they were all amazingly great, but just so different. So, mm. you know, like, like honestly, when I would play with Ginger, we would play so loud that you want to hear the crazy stuff. This is how I would keep time with Ginger. Cause we were so loud. Um, Ginger is high, was always on the up. He was always on the upbeat. So whenever I'd get lost, I would just look back and I was just fine. I just knew he was on the upbeat. All the other drummers, their hi hats were on the down. You know what I mean? So that's how we would, would, would you know, that's how crazy it was, but you learn to, 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 you know, stick and move in that situation. But so anyways, fly out to uh, California. I stayed out in studio city, put my, and of course I wanted to, you know, I, I, you know, I wanted to play ball. So I was staying in a nice hotel. I fly out, they come out. I literally learned the, um, I think I learned, I, I remember they gave me a cassette of the stuff and the songs were pretty ba- were really basic. So it was really just being familiar with the song. It wasn't the yeah. chords or how to play it. It was just memorizing the actual song. You know but also I mean? so, important note to this, like you flew out and put yourself up on your own dime. They didn't correct. fly yet, which is weird because they were a pretty big band and they only auditioned two people. Huge. So why wouldn't they pay for your plane ticket and hotel? Well, you know, it's it, the music industry is a, is a, is a fickle beast. <laughs> I guess so. You know, and what I will say is the bigger, in general, it, it, the, the bigger the projects I would work on, the more crazy it would be. Like, I always remember thinking, well, all right, this one's kind of crazy. But when I get to the next one, that's when it's going to all make sense. And they just, <laughs> it's just not the case. You were, you know, you really, it was, you know, if you want to, if you want to join, if you want to be in the music industry, uh, you definitely take a moment and think about it. Is all I'm going to say. Um, so, yeah, I flew myself out on my own dime. I put myself, I think I was out like, you know, 
three grand or something like that, which, you know, keep in mind, I was not, you know, that was a lot of money to me at the time. Yeah. I put myself out and uh, I had the management just send me a cassette of their live show. And that way I just figured, and I just listened to it on the plane. Like I'd never hmm. learned the songs. I just listened to it. And then when I got there, I just went in the hotel. I was like, okay, I knew what the chords were, you know, it was one of four chords, you know, cause that, they, they're not they're very different. complex songs. Right? No, they weren't, but, but there is an art to it. Definitely. Yeah. Not, not, not that I, you know, it, it's honestly the simpler stuff's kind of harder to play. Cause it just comes down to either you've got the feel for it or you don't, there's nothing to hide behind, but the feel was no big deal. Like it just kind of naturally, I felt worked into my skill set fine. Like, you know, it was just one of those few groups that I would be able to do that with, you know, whereas I couldn't yeah. do that with a, you know, if I had to play with sting, I'd be like, Oh shit, here we go. I got to <laughs> homework here. You know what I mean? Um, so then I came down, I played and, and we got along instantly right out of the gate. Everything was great. And I came in. And so basically I think the difference was this, it wasn't playing the songs, playing the songs was easy. What they needed was a songwriter. That was really the deal because CC was really one of the primary uh, you know, was one of the primary legs that held up that structure, you know? And right. so what they really needed more than anything else, I mean, it wasn't a guy to play the parts or fit the image. It was a guy that could further write songs and continue on down the path. And that was up my alley because in essence, I know everybody kind of knows me as a guitar guy, but even in the last, you know, 20 something years, I've been a composer because honestly, even back in the day, that's what I was kind of more about. The guitar was just honestly a tool to help me. It was just a tool in my skill set. You know, I'm a multi-instrumentalist, but I'm clearly not as good on the other things. So I would kind of like, I understand drums. I can play drums. I'm by no means a drummer, but thanks to the, you know, thanks to the technology of MIDI, I'm a drummer now. You know what I mean? So, you know, <laughs> even though I'm, I'm not a drummer's drummer per se, you know, I lack the, the, you know, that, um, even, you know, insight, but I had a good approach to it. Like I had a good style that always worked, but so anyway, so the songwriting was fine. I was like, Oh hell, I can, I can, I know where these, like I understood where I understood what they were and what they weren't. So we, I think we all did. I came, I remember coming in twice. I think if, if my, and I could be off. I know I definitely came in once flew in, played the songs. That was great. Everybody got along. And then while I was there, they said, Hey, let's come in and do some writing. And I said, cool. So I came down and we just left, we just let a, a DAP machine at the time rip. And we just started working on songs and we were just coming up with stuff like that. It was really no big deal. It was coming. Were out these like the songs that would later end up on crack a smile or was this some were, some weren't, some were, some okay. weren't, but basically my approach was this and, and I was very forthcoming with it. I was very hyper and, and, you know, it was a mile a minute and high energy. And, you know, I mean, I've mellowed more now and I'm still hyper, you know what I mean? So I came in and I, I think what it came down to my belief was I could be wrong. Uh, I know that I got along really well with Ricky and Bobby instantly like that. We just collect and they were like, yeah, this is piece of cake with, with Brett. I think because my personality was just so similar to CC's like CC was very high energy and was very, you know, it's kind of almost like you just break up with one girlfriend and the next girl comes in is almost identical. Mm. Whereas Richie was more, I think Richie was much more of like, and I was kind of like rougher. Like I was, so like in short, like, you know, I take great pride in what I can do, but I know what it is and I know what it isn't. So, you know, basically like I came in and I'm like, guys, my approach was like this. You guys are a fun, cool rock and roll band. You know, I go, the girls love you. So fuck the guys. Who cares? You already have the girls. You've already won. I mean, you win by default because you've got the girls. So the guys are going to show up no matter what. But at the time, keep in mind, this was starting to pivot towards like the hair metal thing was starting to die out. And it was right. starting, now all kind of like the serious bands were starting to kick in. And I think, I, I think Brett in particular, 
you know, really wanted to kind of really wanted to kind of win over the 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 the, the critics and the you know and the guys. And my approach was like, you're never going to fucking win them. You'll never be taken seriously that way. You know what I mean? Like you, you know, I so I I was kind of like, so fuck it. Let's just be the best you know, girl band that you can fucking be and, and, and fuck them. You know what I mean? That was kind of my take. You wanted to be in a party band and then Ricky and Bobby were all about it. Yeah. They were like, well, I mean, that's just what the skill, their skill set only went so far. And it was great. It was like me trying to be a jazz guitarist and all honesty, my skill set doesn't lend itself to it. So it's not that I don't appreciate, like I have a friend, Josh Smith, that guy is, he's off the rails. I watch him. I'm like, geez, that guy is crazy good, you know, but it's not my skill set. So I just admire his skill set. And then I just move on because he's already got it so locked. I don't even want to waste my time trying to even, you know, because I just would rather listen to him, to be honest with you, you know. And so I kind of felt that way about, you know, about Poison. It's like, let's just be a fun time party band. The problem was the times were changing and fun was out and brooding was in, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I was like, fuck it, weather the storm, just do what you do, be authentic to who you are. And it will, and it will be what it is. And if it, you know, because it's like MC Hammer, he's like dancing around. And then two albums later, he's a fucking thug gangster. And you're like, what? <laughs> you know what that I mean? was weird. It was weird, right? You know, yeah, even yeah. though, and he's a super talented guy, he should have yeah. just stuck with being the super talented guy that he is, you know? And so that was my take. And I, and my gut, my gut feeling is, Brett was just not feeling that. I think Brett wanted to go in that other direction. I think Richie just fit that mold better. You know what I mean? He was, mm -hmm. you know, more the musicians musician, you know, and he could probably, you know, do that better, you know, for, for what they wanted. So my gut feeling honestly is probably why they went there. And, and if that was their choice, it probably made more sense because I was never going to do that. So Ultimately, so, but the way they left it was kind of janky. Like, I never got a call back. It just went radio silent. So I was out like three grand and then just- You had to fly up twice, right? Two auditions? Yeah, I think, I I, want, I remember flying out twice. Uh, I know I, we definitely did things twice. Honestly, it's been a hot minute. I could be off on that. But I, yeah. I remember and staying up right, you know, right at the, right in Studio City. And I remember I was out a bunch of cash and it was hard because I was playing with Jack at the time. So I had to do it in between. I left, mm. I was doing guitar clinics. So I would do Jack and Jack was cool because he would schedule stuff enough. And then it would allow me to do guitar clinics because keep in mind, I was still just day to day. I was still just a, 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 a journeyman. I was just making money. I was getting paid a while on the road or I would go do guitar clinics. So there was no passive income for me. It was all you know. just, I'd work, I'd get paid, I'd work, I'd get paid, you know, and, and I was still living in Connecticut. I was still living in my parents' garage of all places, but I wasn't really home much because I was touring so much. And, uh, and so I was just kind of trying to figure it out. And I wanted to move out to Los Angeles because I knew the second I went for that first damn show, I'm like, and I'm fucking out of here. You know what I mean? Like, phew. so it was just a matter of when it made sense. And I was doing records at the time because I was really trying to build a career. I really mm -hmm. was very career motivated and I wanted to get out of my situation. And it's not that Connecticut's a bad place. It's just that I was in a very blue collar. I mean, I was going to end up being, you know, there wasn't a ton of opportunities for me there. So yeah. I really was so motivated to get out. Um, so so did you way, really want the poison gig? I mean, were you like, yeah, oh, yeah I did. I'll tell you why I did. I did because what happened was I was playing with Jack. It was great. I was doing guitar clinics. It was great. I had the respect of my peers and I, that meant everything, but I didn't have the experience of playing arenas. I didn't have experience of playing for, I wanted to play for the girls. I didn't want to play for a bunch of balding dudes or a bunch of guys sitting there with their arms folded at my guitar clinics, asking me what pick I use. Like I, listen, I appreciated every last person that came out there. It wasn't that it wasn't, right. a, it was just after a while, 
when you sit down at the movie and you know how it ends, it's just time to go see a different movie. And I had been doing it for five years at that yeah. point. And I was grateful. Believe me, I, it was beats going home and doing construction. You know what I mean? And, and it was a chance, but I just was getting, it was getting stagnant. And so what's happening was it was getting stagnant and I felt myself losing the motivation to kind of push it forward. And I didn't want to do that because honestly, I respect people. Anybody that's going to give me an ounce of their time, I want my absolute best out there. Otherwise, I feel like I'm not giving them what, you know, I'm not giving them their their money's worth. And I would never do like I want if I show up, I want your full attention. And mm-hmm. so I wouldn't expect anything less for me. And so when I kind of felt you know, meaning me giving it to other, to, to giving it to other people. And I just kind of felt like ah, I was just starting to get stagnant and I just didn't know where to take it. I was losing motivation. I did three records. And to be honest with you, after the third one, I was done. And it wasn't that I was done with ideas. It wasn't that if anything, I could, the problem was it was so much work to do those records. They were brutally hard to do. And they weren't really fun to do because I just took them so serious and they were only going to go so far. It was kind of like, I was just getting a lot of the same fan base you know, I wasn't, it wasn't really branching out. And so hmm. I just, I just felt like, you know, there's, I, I just didn't, it didn't feel sincere anymore. So I stopped doing it. And the people to this day ask me every day or not every day, but you know, every time I get, you know, some time of, of interaction, do do more records, do more of this. I just, you know, at the time I didn't feel it was authentic. So I didn't do it, which is weird to walk away from something when you're kind of like, I was kind of at the top of my game for that. And as far as exposure and all that stuff, I just, just didn't feel, you know, I just didn't feel like it was going to be a home run. So I just bailed. And um, so, yes, I did want to do the, the the poison thing because I wanted to play the stadiums. I wanted to tour. I wanted to play these big events, you know, and, you know, the, I think the biggest I had played in front of was we did Tel Aviv, Israel for like, and they shut down. I think we played like it was an outdoor festival. It felt like, you know, they're saying like it was like 20, 30,000 people, you know, which was cool. And I liked that. I was like, oh, this feels comfortable. It was outdoors. And I love playing outdoors because I could play so loud. And outdoors is weird. The sound just goes out and doesn't come back. So you can play super loud. And it's like nothing. It's weird. It's, it was awesome, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I loved it. And, and, and so I liked playing the bigger stages for because I just didn't have that experience as much as I wanted. So then Poison comes along. And so I auditioned for the thing and it just didn't end up happening. And they didn't, you know, they didn't even call me and say, hey, we're just going to go into depression. I just got nothing. Fucking radio silence. Which is, is that me. usual in the business? Because that seems unusual. You know, there, for- is no, there is no usual in the business. Okay. That's really the truth. There is no right. one that says that. It isn't. It's different horses for different courses. That's really the truth. I've, you know, I worked with Melissa Etheridge. She was the nicest lady. I mean, literally, I, I, I couldn't believe how just like she was cool. She was would work, we would talk, you know, it was like, it was very collaborative. I mean, what a nice person, what a talent. And just, a, she really respected and, and addressed her, you know, the people that she worked with, everybody from the engineers to the producers. I mean, I, I really can't say a, a, a nice enough things like, you know, her, her and Rudy Sarzo are going to end up in heaven somewhere. <laughs> you know, like, like they're just, right. you know, that was, that's at least was my experience with them. Yeah. Then I've worked with people that were just, they say, don't meet your idols. And let me tell you, there is so much to be said about that. Cause you meet people and you're like, how can you be such a talented, talented person and be such a walking pile of garbage? Like it is, it is amazing. So wow. my experiences, and they've been vast on many different levels is it's just different for every different set of circumstances. It seems like most of the, the most successful people are usually typically the most professional and nicest, at least in my experience with doing the podcast, like D Snyder 
and uh, uh, you know, all the big, like John Karabi, those guys are just so nice. Like yeah. Alice Cooper, I've heard nothing but good things about him. Yeah, same here. Same here. I've heard yeah. great things. Well, it's funny. D, I played on a song, Easy Action with D Snyder back in the day from a producer. I want to say Rick Wake. So uh, I, that he's one, he's a phenomenal singer. Like don't mm-hmm. be fooled by the, the image when it comes down to it, that dude's just got a great tone to his voice and he's a hard working guy. Like, you know, he's not in the shape he's in by accident, you know, is the point. So, you know, another, right. another East coast guy and Joe Franco, which was the drummer, who's another, just, I mean, you know, you want the Joe Franco's in your, in your, in your team because, or in your life, because he's just, you know, professional and super talented. And, and, you know, these are the people you want. And so I've been very fortunate to work with these just monster talents and also just really nice people. And I've also worked with some of the biggest nightmares where you're like, geez, you know, it is what it is. You just kind of have to, you, you just learn to kind of uh, navigate the personalities, you know, hmm. because each one in their own way has something to bring to the table. And there's honestly something to be learned at all of these uh, junctures. You know, I've, I've even the people that were horrible to deal with, I've learned a lot, you know, and it depends on your personality. I'm, you know, I don't have a problem with, with people that are hard to deal with because, you know, it's just, you know, it doesn't bother me. And, and like I said, I only, I only bend so much, then it's like, fuck off. You know what I mean? I think once <laughs> those lines are, yeah. once those lines are established, everybody knows where they are and then we just get it done. You know, some yeah. people like to create through tension and you have to realize that's just their method. Like some people, you know, I like things to be kind of calm and cool and collaborative and, you know, everybody's, you know, I like it to be a good vibe, but some people love tension and just, you know, just the bashing of heads and just like, you know, everybody fighting for their spot. And that's, that's their method. And so you have to be, you have to be willing to kind of jump in there and start kicking ass too. You can't be, you can't be a daffodil and, you know, amongst files, you know, it doesn't work. Yeah. So So back to the poison thing. So yeah, yeah, so they, they don't call you. So then time goes on. And then obviously we know the story with Richie. They've Threw his yeah, bags a, over the fence. They had a falling out. out. Yeah, they had a falling out there, and and they moved on. What did on you really slept with somebody's girlfriend or something? Or yeah, uh, th- that's listen. It's 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 out there. I'll let you yeah. guys go online and search it up. Uh, but yeah, it, it's they have a falling out with him. They literally leave him leave him mid tour, and they have another leg of the. I think they had finished the U.S. tour, and I believe there was part of a uh, a. Uh, I think it was like Chile, Caracas, all that. They had like a couple, uh, a couple overseas stuff. They had commitments they had to make for this album they did with him. So they, so there was a cycle. The cycle is you write a record, you record a record, you release the record, and then you tour to promote the record. And if the record does well, the cycle is a long cycle. If the record doesn't do well, then it's a shorter cycle and there may not be another cycle. So Poison was on top of the world. They brought in Richie. They kind of went in a very different direction because I think that was really, I think Brett and, I want to say Brett, my guess is Brett and Richie were kind of instrumental in, in coming up with that would be my guess. I wasn't there, so I can't tell you for sure, but that would be my guess. They went kind of a different direction, which was different. I think a lot of the Poison fans didn't, wasn't necessarily, my opinion was it wasn't necessarily what they were expecting. You know what I mean? So yeah. even though I thought that record had a mm-hmm. lot of great merit to it, um, I don't necessarily know if it was what people were you know, was what they were ready to digest at that time. So the record did what it did. They did a a cycle. And then at the end of the cycle, they had the falling out. Richie's out. They had some overseas stuff to do. Um, And then they come back to me. I was body surfing on a Sunday. And then my phone was like, you know, when the moral story is when people want to find you, they will find you. I must've gotten seven phone calls from seven different people. Hey, call into the poison camp, call into the poison camp. You know, they're calling my parents' house. My, My, I mean, it was crazy. It was almost like the cops were after me. It's and, like, and this uh, is before cell phones and social media, so they can't just yeah, find yeah, your Twitter or whatever. Yeah, I think there was cell phones. I had the big old flip top, but you know, I was out surfing. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
it's fucking Sunday. I'm surfing, you know, in Malibu, yeah. you know what I mean? Just living the dream, you know? So, uh, I get a call. I talked to Ricky. Ricky was in studio city. Now at this point, I think I, I, at this point I lived out here now. So okay. I was already out here. You know, I, I basically decided to make the move. So I was out here. So I met with Ricky that same Sunday. I remember showed up. I was fucking, you know, had still had sunblock in my face and shit. <laughs> I met with Ricky. We talked and Ricky was like, listen, man, you know, of course we always wanted you in the band, but it was really more of a Brett thing. I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. So here's what it came down to. <laughs> came down to they knew i already knew the tunes because i had already jammed with them you know sure. so they already knew it was going to work so they said listen uh we're gonna we want to bring you in let's do this tour if the tour works out we'll talk about moving forward and they offered me a pretty sizable amount of money to do it to, to the tour for i think it was going to be a uh two-week tour you know but in the back of my head i was like yeah you guys totally jacked me on that last one and they offered a decent amount they were definitely over a barrel you know so i went back to them and says well Double it. <laughs> yeah. I love that, that part of the story. That, so way, that way I was fine. Like I kind yeah. of felt like, all right, it was what it was, you know, but then I doubled it, you know? And so, so at that point I was good. Like at that point. And they said, forward, yes, right. You said double and they said, okay. Oh yeah. on the spot. No problem. You know what I mean? So and it was a lot. Well, maybe so, you could have got triple. Nah, they weren't going to do triple. It was okay. d- double was, I asked for a lot. You know what I mean? Okay. So, uh, you know what I mean? Uh, and honestly I did, it wasn't about sticking it to him. It was just about, Hey, I was out that money and I just felt like yeah. fuck it, double it. And I feel good in the moving forward. And so, so that was it. We doubled, we did the tour and that was a great experience. We got to do like rock and Rio. I played Chile, Caracas, South America. And there's a, I got crazy stories about that that are just like, Holy shit. You can't make this stuff up. Like Quentin Tarantino needs to call me. I got shit that is for fucking off the rattles dude it's nuts what give me one of those jesus uh, the greatest teases all right well think about this the first gig i ever played and i'll give you the abridged one because I, I can't let all the juice out of the, out of the box but sure. basically uh we we go to play in in, in their version of a, a i think this was it's, it's maybe chile i don't know south america somewhere i'm not even sure because honestly they start blurring together yeah we're gonna do sound check and their version of a stadium over there was kind of like a really big really big gymnasium now we're talking there ain't shit up the code like i'm looking up and as we're hitting the kick drum dust is coming down and i'm like and then and all of a sudden every you know like when you flick a card like you play the card where you you know throw the card well every now and then a ceiling tile would come down and you know like would fling right by you and then i looked up and i realized holy shit that's not dust that's probably asbestos you know what i mean and i'm looking up and i'm like and i'm like fuck man there ain't no sprinklers in this place like i was like oh shit you know what I mean? So I was like, okay, well, fuck it. Here we are. It's, you know, you're in a third world country. There's not, it's a whole different set of rules over there. And uh, so the first band comes on, you know, and I'm like, well, I'm going to go check out the first band, you know, just cause I'm, you know, I'm new to this. I'm like, yeah, let's go sit. And I'm like, holy shit, it's raining. You know what I mean? And the first band, it's fucking raining on the first band. And I'm like, but then I'm like, well, I know there's no sprinklers. And I know there's a ceiling because I remember the fucking tiles coming down. <laughs> and I look up and sure enough, there's a ceiling and there's fucking rain inside. It's raining indoors. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? You know, I thought maybe like somebody had a hose or something like that. And so what it was, was the crowd spitting on the on the opening band. That was their way. If they liked you, they would spit, you know. What so, the fuck? Right. You know, and so I'm <laughs> sitting there. And I go get the other guys. I'm like, you guys got to see this shit, you know? So there's four of us standing on the side of the stage, looking at them, looking at each other, you know, and the fucking singer looks like a fucking glazed donut. Like it was rough, man. Ew. 
Yeah, it was. What rough. band was this? Do you remember? I don't remember. It was, I think it was a, a, a you know whatever whatever it was a South American band. Very oh, popular. local. Okay. They, were, they were a great band. I'll tell you that. I don't remember who they were, but I remember they sounded fucking tight, you know. And uh, and I go look at those guys, and I'm like, fuck this noise. You know what I mean? Like I don't need the money that bad. I'm not doing this shit. You know what I mean? So the story goes on and on and on. But basically, you're in South America, and the rules aren't what they. <laughs> the rules aren't what they are over here. And so the long story short is we went out and played because we weren't, there wasn't a ton of options. I just put a, I had like a skater hood on and I just pulled it tight. And so luckily by the time we got out there, I think they had lost a little bit of their, their verve per se, but they would bring lemons to re rejuvenate the salivary glands and stuff. Wow. So, yeah. So that's how the tour started, you know, and uh, it just goes from there. So, so did, was Poison still in, this is like 93, 94. Are they still in like the party mode? Is, is Ricky still doing the, like the thing where he points at the girls and then like they bring him backstage and stuff, or are they uh, kind of well, mellowed I mean, out on that? I don't, it, we were, I mean, first of all, we were, start, we don't, I, it was a kind of a, an interesting thing. I was, it came at the end of the tour. So I really only did the South America leg. And then we did, it's like, we, you know, I never really did the U.S. stuff. We did a couple, like we would fly in, and Brett and I would do like acoustic shows, like in, you know, the B ninety three in 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 mm. you know in in fucking New Orleans, or so. We'd play a stadium. It was just he and I playing acoustic guitar. Hmm. But we didn't. I didn't really get to experience the the whole the whole U.S. thing because it wasn't my thing. And honestly, I didn't take part in any of that stuff. I always had like the crazy part was. I, I always had girlfriends, so I wasn't in the band to get girls because that was I, I always ended up for whatever reason, always had girlfriends. Hmm. And uh, I just wanted the experience to playing the thing. So all the, the the silliness that went on, really, I wasn't a part of any of that stuff. I just never took part in it, because to be honest with you, my tenure with that band was really like this. It was a marriage of convenience. We all understood it and we were all hmm. good with it. Like those guys are very it was like the three of them and me. You know, so here would be a typical rehearsal. We'd go to a writing session. We'd go to a writing session. We'd come out great, you know, and then it'd be like, all right, let's hit the strip clubs. I'm like, yeah, I'm going back home. I'm going to sleep. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know, those guys would go their way and do their thing. And I would just go mine. But we, everybody respected each other and it worked. It was very smooth. There was no, there was no blowouts. It was just very, it was like a well-oiled machine at that hmm. point. And, and, and uh, so the stuff that they did was really kind of on their thing. And I just kind of stayed to my, kind of had my own little world going there. So my, my time with poison was, was very enjoyable and I really have nothing but really nice things to say. I, I didn't, you know, everything was totally above board. Everything that, that went to, you know, I didn't, everything was great, you know? So yeah, it sucks that they, and you'd made this album. That's I like it. I think it's underrated. Yeah, and but it doesn't come out for like six years or something. Yeah, no, yeah. I never well, understood that. Yeah. Well, whatever, whatever, whatever. So what ends, what ends up happening was that um, I came in and I was originally signed, signed on. So we did the tour and tour went great. You know what I mean? Everything, everybody got along really well. And, and, and I, I really just, there was, I have nothing bad to say. Everybody was really cool. I got along with everybody and, and they were all really nice to me and the crew was nice. Everybody was good. And everybody, there was no drama. There was no drama, no craziness. I don't have, I, I, like my crazy stories are about like on stage, like, like my crazy stories, like to clarify, they weren't, there was nothing bad. It was like, I jumped in the crowd once and uh, I jumped so far in security couldn't get to me. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, so what shit. happened was I was basically getting mauled publicly, you know, and you know, because I, it was at the end of like, these are the stories I've got. They were like, like, like I would run and I jumped off the monitor and I staged over so far out there that I went past the security team, you know? And so I just, I just remember hearing this. 
And that was the security, like trying to make way through the, cause it was local security and they were trying to yeah. get me, but I was getting like pummeled because wow. I was so far out, like just crazy stories like that, where, you know, Oh my God. You know what I mean? Like just, you know, we played, like we would play, um, we played rock and Rio and I thought we were going to, you know, you know, it was us and Aerosmith and I thought we were going to play like, you know, we flew in on a Friday and then we left on a Sunday. I thought we were playing Friday and uh, Friday and Saturday and leaving, but we weren't, we played the Friday and then we played the following Saturday. So we had a week where we're stuck in a hotel with like, it was us, Whitney Houston, Robert Plant, Aerosmith, you know, we're just sitting at the hotel and we're there for a week. Everybody's kind of there and you couldn't leave because there was so many people it was like the Beatles, like this was South hmm. America. So one out of every three households at the time, I believe, according to the people that, you know, the, our interpreters and stuff, they said, well, like one of every, out of every three households has a television. You know what I mean? So like when you go there, you're literally like the Beatles because they had never experienced anything like that. Like, you know, we didn't go through customs, none of that stuff. I don't remember any of that stuff. I just remember guys showing up with like machine guns to like escort us places. And I'm like, holy smokes, this is nutty, you know? But, um, but yeah, the band was cool. And we got along very well. And so what happened was I was supposed to take a year. We did a tour and the guys were like, listen, this is clearly working out. Come, come, you know, come join the band. And every cycle will just kind of cycle you in more. And I was like, that's fair. So the sad part is I had to go back. In order to do that, I had to go back to Jack and cancel. That was kind of the deal. And he had Mm. stuff on the books. Now he had time to get a replacement. It wasn't like I, you know, I wouldn't leave him in a lurch being like, hey, you got two weeks but, you know, we had stuff planned maybe like a month or two out. The problem was for Jack, it was hard because we had grown together as like a team, like after playing with him for five years, like we didn't, we never used set lists. He would just look at me. I knew we just like, he had kind of like almost groomed me to be, you know, in that band, a certain, I fit a, a certain thing and we got along so well and everything was so good. So when I left, I had to leave because I, I had to make a decision either. I had to go, I couldn't do both because it yeah. wasn't, the schedules weren't going to work. So that was a very hard conversation i had to go back to jack and say hey listen it's not you know he's like is it the money and it wasn't it wasn't the money he couldn't offer me enough because that project just didn't pull in what this project pulled in so even if they you know adjusted the the finances it wasn't about that it was i just i just like i need the opportunity to go play these stadiums and and tour the world and travel on this level and and have these experiences because i kind of feel like i'm just getting stagnant here you know and he understood it but it was i think it really hurt him you know, and I always, that was just a hard conversation. There was just no, there was no fix for it either. I had to make the jump and do it, you know, and uh, uh, otherwise I wasn't being true to myself, but then you realize the damage you caused leaving. And it was just, you know, there was no, you know, so I, and I was, and keep in mind, his wife, Margaret managed him. So we were very close. Everybody was very close. We were, you know, I'd go there and stay at his house on his farm and stuff, you know, and, you know, I was so grateful for all the opportunities. It was just coming to a point where I just, I had to go to the next level. And this, you know, we weren't going to play, you know, I wasn't going to play the, you know, like, like I, like as soon as I left that I'm doing stadiums and then like we're playing with Aerosmith. So like we play and then they wheel Aerosmith out and we're playing, we're outside. And I don't know how many people were there. You can go on YouTube and look at it. All I can tell you is this, this was back when people did lighters, when they held up their lighters, it felt like you could see the curvature of the earth. That's a lot of people, you know, that's, that's pretty saying, cool. Yeah. They're saying it's like over a hundred thousand or whatever. I don't know. I wasn't there with a clicker counting them, but yeah. you know, my point was I wasn't going to get that experience the other place to play right. outside to play, you know, yeah. and then they wheel my cabin out and then I'm just sitting there like a kid with my legs dangling on like Brad Whitford's cabinet while they do the Aerosmith. And there's Steve Tyler doing his dance and he's like 20 feet away. And I'm like, this is cool. You know what I mean? Like 
you know, so I needed to do that because I had to, you know, that was part of my journey there. So, but it was hard because there was definitely, I know Jack didn't talk to me for a hot minute. It was a couple, many years where I just didn't talk to him. I, I did before he passed, wow. I did run into him at the house of blues. I went down and saw him play. Vernon Reed was like just shredding it up on the guitar. You know, it was fun. It was a great show. That's surprising that he wouldn't be happy for that opportunity for you. Like, I, think I mean, he he's was. already had his success. He's a, he's the bass player from cream. Like, he was, I think it wasn't that he, Jack's a very kind person. It wasn't that, or, you know, I say is because I, you know, I realize he's passed, but he is, it's not that I, we just grew together. I think he really, really appreciated what we have. We were like this ragtag misfit yeah. thing that worked. Like he really took me under his wing. He liked it. I was just bananas with shit. Like I didn't realize, like he would tell me thing. I'm like, yeah, I guess that is kind of crazy. Like when I look back at it, like I remember getting an argument with the with the with the uh, I got an argument with the with the president of Epic Records because you know <laughs> over a principal thing like it was weird it, you know because he was like holy shit you were nuts I was like oh yeah I didn't I didn't you know I didn't realize at the time but he liked that and so I think he just kind of really just cared for this like situation we had so it wasn't that he wasn't happy for me I think he was just he was sad that it just kind of came to an end and disappointed, you know, just, yeah. yeah, disappointed, I think, you know, so, but we talked, we talked, we had a great, we talked at the, at the house of blues and I saw Bernie there. I saw it was, it was great. You know, I got the chance to kind of catch up and he was, you know, he was doing great and everything was great. But like I said, it's the music industry. It's not, you know, it's not what you think it is when you think it is. It, there's yeah. everything comes with something else. And so. Yeah. Well, but, I know you got to get going, but before you, you got to tell me that I know, well, you've already told the story before, but my audience hasn't heard it. The David Lee Roth story. This is legendary. <laughs> I love this one. Yeah. It's a good one. Right. Uh, I was, uh, I'm trying to think I was, I was walking on Venice beach with my girlfriend at the time. And I ran to Rick Rubin and, uh, and he was really cool. I, I, I've always been a big fan of his production wise. And he was, you know, he's a real, real hip guy. Like he would, have you seen the documentary on him? Uh, no. Is there one? Yeah. It's like, it's really interesting. Cause it shows how he's hands off. He is with the production. It's more about the vibe and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. He kind of gives you the rope to kind of hang yourself a little bit, you know, yeah. in a good way, but no, he was, this is how cool the guy was. Like, you know, he'd already produced like, you know, the beastie boys, this guy was like, he was the mega producer then, you know, and I got hip to him from a band called masters of reality. I thought I just loved that. Oh yeah. Album. Isn't that, yeah. um, who's the drummer for that? It's, well, at one point, believe it or not, Ginger Baker was. There I was, was going to say, yeah, that's yeah. what. I, yeah. Well, the, it's really for me was about that. They they did a record called Sunrise on the Suffer Bust. It was great, but I liked them because they were like kind of like it was Chris Goss was the singer, mm. and man, I just that that's you definitely if you're like a Queens of the Stone Age fan, which oh, I yeah. am because I know I know Josh and, and I just really respect him as an artist. Uh, but Brilliant. like, you see, you can see like you can see kind of like the template of certain things, and really like you know, I kind of thought like to me. Masses of reality kind of felt like a heavier version of cream, like a, like a hard rock version of cream, you know? So I was instantly, and then I heard the chili peppers. And so the second I heard that blood sugar sex magic, I'm like, whoever produced this shit is fucking is, is on it because he was smart enough to get the best out of that situation. You know? And I think that to me is what a good producer is. They go in and they find a way of accentuating the positive and whatever isn't great that gets kind of put by the side there. So for whatever reason I had run into him, uh, I, I stopped and I talked to him and we were talking for two seconds. And I mean, you know, that's pretty crazy when a guy of that, you know, success was still hip with all the guitar players and stuff like yeah. that. And so he said, Hey, you should, fuck was it? I, I want to come to, I, I think he said, Hey, you should audition for, for, you should go, you should go meet with David Lee Roth. And I think he told David Lee Roth, he goes, you should call this kid blues. Cause at the time, 
<laughs> Roth wanted to make a blues record. And Rick was like, well, his name's blues. So you should check him out. <laughs> you know? And I, at least that's the way the story was told to me. And, you know, and I'm like, that's fucking hilarious. So anyways, the story goes like this and it's a great, it's a funny story. And like I said, all my stories, I got to be honest with you, I don't really have any negative of, of anything. So every story, please take with the best. Yeah, no, no, these are fun. This is great. Yeah, this yeah, they life. really are. They're hilarious to me. Yeah. Like I said, who knows what the digital age are. I'm surprised you don't do more podcasts. Like I try, no, honestly, I try to kind of not do them. I, I like kind oh. of staying a little bit under the radar. Uh, and honestly, I have a very pretty, I'm so, when, I, when I'm in my work, I'm almost like a method actor. I just like yeah. to be focused on it, you know? And honestly, I have a family. I'm all about raising my kids and stuff. So I kind of decided to leave a little the in front of the camera stuff behind. Uh, and, and, you know, so I kind of just randomly pick things that I think would be a good fit. You know, obviously when I, when, 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 when I checked out your stuff, I was like, oh, this guy gets it, you know, but I, I don't want to be common fair. I just, I'm just, not about that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I well, I'm just like, warning you now, cause I have a lot of podcasters that follow me. They're probably going to be reaching out. So you could pick, well, I mean, you know, once again, it's, if, if there's something, something to be, if there's a different angle or something to come at, you know, plus yeah. I just get tired of telling the same stories. There's so sure. many great stories out there, but, but anyways, the Roth one was like this. Now clearly Van Halen was, was just the band that band really did it for me. As far as like, whenever I heard that, you know, when I had a Sony Walkman, I remember walking to school and just, Whatever it was, the second I heard that band, I knew every fiber of my DNA knew, holy shit balls, here we go. And I can't tell you exactly what it was. It was a culmination of everything. And so for me, as much as I, I love the Hagar era for what it was, it was just, I'm a very diehard, like I just, Roth was the guy for me, even though, listen, I, if, if Sammy Hagar called me right now, I would literally hang up with you on the spot <laughs> and work with him. I would so, tell you to do that. Yeah. Because yeah, I mean, his, and especially now he, you know, he's a real deal singer, the way he keeps his voice in shape. I mean, the guy's tone, it's great. It's and all the stories I've heard of people on the podcast that worked with him, it sounds like it's freaking amazing. Like he picks yeah. up in the red for it's always the same story. He picks up in the red Ferrari and yeah. it's just crazy. Well, he's got a great guitar player, Victor Johnson, which was really yeah. from the Plus Boys. That guy, even back, I remember listening to Delirious going, holy shit, that guitar player knows what he's doing, man. And I was right. The guy's a great guitar player. So I'm going to say Sammy's got a great ear for guitarist. And so in as much as I am a fan of him as it, it just of the two, I was just a Van Halen guy. It was like that chemistry. It was the, it was everything about Roth from like, you know, everything. So, so of the two, listen, you know, it's like, do I take the Porsche or the Ferrari? They're both amazing. There's, you know, I don't find, I think, you, I don't think anybody can find fault with anybody. I'm just saying for me personally, I was, I was a original. The first six were, were what I was about probably also because the guitar sound was what it was when he changed and he kind of started to evolve and, you know, and move it out. It just lost me. I, I like the ride. I don't care about the hits. I care about like, I liked every, I like the warts and all approach. I think that's kind of what I liked mm -hmm. about it. And so as good as, 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 as Hagar is, he's just not that, you know, he can't be that because he's not that he's much more of a polished professional, you know, you know, singer, you know, and in all fairness, I just liked them because that was their early phase. So no matter how good he is, he just wasn't part of that early phase. So I will say that, but, but the, my, my, my respect for, for Hagar is, is off the charts, but anyways, so I was a, a Roth guy. So at some point, I was still living in Connecticut at the time. I don't know how or why this works out, but I was still living there and I was about to move out and I was living with my, my then girlfriend and I was staying at her place. I was going to move out in about a month and her, their parents were so cool. I mean, you know, they let me stay there. I had all my gear, which was in road cases sitting in their garage, like, you know, which was about to be shipped out. So I had like about four weeks where I needed to kind of stay before I made the final move. 
and uh, I was going to move out and find a place to live. And then she was going to come out and live with me. So we were kind of, you know, pretty far along in our relationship. It was good, but the parents were just super nice. And they said, Hey, listen, if you want during this transition, you can stay. We have an extra room. You can stay there and you can just stay at our place for a month. We're fine with it. So and their house was much, meticulous. I mean, like everything they had, like, and I, it was very Connecticut, like doilies everywhere. And like, you know, you know, little signs of, you know, around the place, little tchotchkes everywhere. And so I got to stay in this little, it was like a, a guest room that like, you know, and it was literally like a showroom. It had all these pieces that were like meticulously in pillows everywhere. So I would literally just lay in the bed like this. I wouldn't even go under the covers because I just didn't want to mess it up. You know what I mean? Like uh, I did the whole vampire style sleep and uh, I was so and this was, you know, right when this was pre cell phone or very early cell phone. So I come home from whatever job I was doing at the time. Uh, I would think I was working in New York city doing a session. I come home and the mom was very nice. She goes, Oh, Hey, I've got a message for you. A, uh, Mr. Roth called you. Um, and I'm like, Mr. Roth. And I'm thinking like, you know, my accountant firm, maybe like, I'm trying to think like this, you know, I can't quite put it together. And I said, uh, Mr. Roth, she goes, yes, uh, he left a message. And I'm like, okay. I'm thinking like, it's like, you know, did I not pay a tax or something like that? You know? And so she looks at the thing, looks at the piece of paper. She goes, um, yes, please call. It's in regards to fame and fortune. And I'm like, fucking David Lee Roth. I knew. <laughs> I was like, oh shit. You know? So there Fuck we go. Yeah. And I, I knew the second I heard that, I'm like, it's on. So the next day, I have to call this number at 12 o'clock. I call, and it's and sure enough, I get the assistant, and the assistant puts me through to him. And there it is, man. There is just like on the videos, hey, man. And it was like, holy <laughs> shit. Balls. There is David Lee Roth, and he's like just going on. I mean, I thought I talked a lot. Holy shit. This guy was just, he just, he was just going. And, he, and I was in. I was like, because this is like, you know. This is after the eat him and eat him and smile era shit. Like this was like, I'm like, fuck. Yeah. You know? So anyways, he says, Hey, you know, uh, you got to come out, you know? So I fly out, um, and I meet him and my mom had a Mazda Miata. So this was 19, it had to be around 1990, you know, cause my mom had a 1990 Mazda oh. Miata or 1991 or something like that. So anyways, they were living in Ojai, which is about, you know, an hour and a half from LA. So they give me the address. I hop in the car and I drive the fucking Mazda Miata with the top down. And, you know, it's like, it's like a fucking Tic Tac with wheels on it, you know. And I pull up to the, to the Roth house in Pasadena. It's got these massive, like, Casablanca-style walls. And the door opens. And there I am. Ding, 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 ding. The car comes in. I park the car. The assistant comes out. And, uh, okay, yeah, Mr. Roth is down by the pool. And I, you know, walk. And it's like, it's quite an estate. Like, it's like, you know, you're walking through, like, this, you know, path. And you're going down these big Did massive. you say it was like the Scarface house? Yeah, it was literally like the fucking Scarface house. I was like, oh, shit, you know? And sure enough, there by the pool in his fucking Adidas tracksuit is David Roth, <laughs> man. And he's like practicing his fucking Tai Chi and shit. And I mean, like, like, and he's got this big fucking phone. And I'm like, oh, this is nuts. You know what I mean? And he was fucking hilarious. Holy shit. I mean, the first, so it was ultimately a three-hour meeting. And the right. first meeting was first hour was i'm telling you my fucking sides hurt he was so funny i mean like it was like the guy was just banging him off he was just one liner after one liner he was dropping these chestnuts of knowledge on me holy shit i mean i had to literally take a minute and be like dude give me a second like he was fucking funny charismatic i mean holy shit and then now we're on hour two and i'm like 
okay, I kind of feel like I kind of heard that before. Like, you know what I mean, like, so, so hour two was starting to kind of get a little long in the tooth for me. And fucking hour three was like, holy shit. I'm literally being held hostage by David Lee Roth. Like I just couldn't, I couldn't find a break in the conversation to like scoot out. Like it was like, it was my best analogy is like the, the movies always, the, the, the records always going, you just drop the needle and you get it. And then you lift up the needle and then you drop it again. Like it's just going. And so, you know, and by, so by hour three, I just had to get out of there. It was too much, man. I was like, it was like, but uh, so anyways, uh, we talked and we had a great time. I sent material. He didn't, I don't think he liked what I sent uh-huh. in and it just never went any farther than that. So that was that story there, but it was a great experience. And, and it was very, I mean, he was very kind and warm and funny, but it was like, whew, it was like drinking straight cranberry juice on that shit, man. You got to add uh-huh. some sugar every now and then, you know, but crazy. Yeah. Crazy, wow. Right? Yeah. So th- you did a song with Vince Neil for a tribute album. Did you have a meeting with him or is that one of those things no. where you just came in? No, and- that was through, uh, uh, that was through Bob Kulik at the time. Oh, okay. Yeah. Really, really. That was very, very sad when he passed. That was a very nice guy. He really, yeah. he was just, he, uh, he just, he was, he had a skill for putting the right people together. And so hmm. we, he brought me in. No, I did mine in pieces on that. I okay. think it was like a session that I did. I mean, at some point I've done so many sessions and even ghost tracks. Like there's a lot of records out there where people will be like, Hey man, you know, you know, the guy in the band, it's not quite in tune or it's a little out of time. And you just kind of come in after hours and you do a little, you know, a little touch up here through their rig that happens every now and then hmm. um, less now because now everything's digital and you can manipulate so much stuff. But, uh. um, but at one point, you know, my career was like guitar guy and then it became like session guy. And then it became kind of like producer guy. Uh, and then it just became like composer guy, you know what I mean? And at, everything was kind of working in tandem, but um, so it just got to the point. The problem with the sessions was once again, there was no, uh, there was no, it was, there was no, um, uh, what do you call it? There was, it was no long-term money. It was just like, you do a session, you get paid by the time you get paid. It's been 90 days, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was just a journeyman and there was no, uh, no income coming in via royalties or anything like that because you're just doing sessions. So yeah. And did I you did have any of those other, uh, like David Lee Roth, like kind of almost got the job kinds of things, auditions that you didn't mm-hmm. get? I mean, there's probably tons. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I, I almost went on the road with Melissa Etheridge for a hot minute that didn't pay, you know, there's a, there's a lot of them. I mean, dude, if I went through all my swings and misses, there's, there's plenty of them, but, uh, I, honestly, I forget you just, there's so much, it's like, it's hard to explain to people. It's like, you know, like what fork did you use yesterday when you ate breakfast? You're like, how about a week ago? How about a year ago? How about, you know, honestly, the way I approach music is it's just, I'm very, you know, I, I don't, I'm not a method type. I'm not a template type of guy. I just, every day, it's almost like an etch sketch. I just wake up and I try something new and different and that keeps it genuine for me. Mm-hmm. So the downside is, you know, I, I read an interview with this guy, Vic Steffens that, that did, um, that engineered and mixed the second record, I believe it was the plaid record. Great guy, super nice guy. I'm so grateful that I got to work with people of that caliber because the record wouldn't have sounded that way. But he did an interview and I read it online and he was telling me about gear I use. I forgot. I didn't even know I used that shit. I forgot, you know, but I trust his memory more than I trust mine. He's like, yeah, Les Paul was used here or there. I'm like, I have a Les Paul. I, I don't remember. <laughs> I just don't rem- you know, I, I just don't because it's one of so many things that I've done. And I'm just, like, I kind of feel like a true artist. What was the saying? John Lennon is like, I'm an artist. Give me a tube. I'll get you something out of it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, like that's kind of just the way I approach it. I don't give a shit. It's all just, you know, throw it at me and we'll figure it out. And I think a, an artist is, 
takes the best for whatever that situation is and figures something cool out of it. And that's what keeps it young. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not 17 anymore. So now I have to approach it that, that way, or I'm just, otherwise it's just a job. And it would, right. I don't need a job. I've, I've been working long enough. I've done fine. I don't, I don't necessarily have to do sessions anymore if I don't yeah. want to. I just, but I want to, uh, you know, just part of being, I think part of being an artist is just approaching yeah. things. That what are way. those highlights? I mean, didn't you also say you jammed with Les Paul? Speaking of Les Paul, yeah. you jammed with the actual real guy. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's super nice guy. He invited me down. And as a matter of fact, this is, you want to hear a funny story about this one. I, this was during the Ivan I've got a picture of it somewhere. I think it's on my Instagram. Just a couple pictures of it. I think I put one up because I, I told somebody the story and they're like, no way. I'm like, dude, just go look on Instagram, man. You know, and uh, John Sticks, which was because he keep in mind John Sticks was the editor of it was really guitar for the practicing musician was his thing. It was his baby. He ran that show. There was a lot of other people that, you know, Cherry Lane that were, it wasn't just him, but that was really kind of his, his baby. So um, he would do these interviews with people like Joe Walsh. Like he played Joe Walsh funk 49. I'm a huge Joe Walsh, like the James gang. Fuck. Yeah. Like, you know, let's do that. I mean, that guy, he made that guitar sound like a beast. I mean, I just love the way that guy played and his intonation was so good. He would bend and he would bend right into tune. And I was like, how do you do that? You know, I just thought that was great. And I loved the tones he got. I loved the James gang, especially James gang rides again. Again, that record for me was the, was the shit, you know, just, but everybody, the drummer was great. Bass player was great. But anyways, he did an interview with Les Paul and he played him some of my stuff. And Les Paul was like, dude, you have him come down and play, you know? And so Les Paul requested that I come down. And I was like, well, I'm not about to turn that down. So it was a place called, I want to say, if I recall, I want to say it's Fat Tuesdays in New York. And I remember it was a rainy day. So we lived in Connecticut. My dad came, my dad drove me down. He had a 59 Paul at the time. It was a quilt top one. It was a Les Paul in really good shape. Uh, and I had the Ibanez and I didn't want to play the Les Paul. Fuck that old guitar. I wanted the <laughs> the whammy bar and shit. So I came down, I was wearing my mom's silver shirt because that was rock and roll at the time, you know, and uh, <laughs> I came down, I sat through the set and he says, Hey, I'm going to bring you up and play. And I was like, let's do it. And he played and the guy was great. And he was just, he was funny. And I don't remember what we played. I just remember doing like, he would play and he would do all the fast stuff. And I was like, well, okay, I got to go to the other way. So I would try and like counter what he did. And so I was doing a lot of the whammy stuff and he just thought that was hilarious. Like he would smile when I do the whammy shit and he didn't, he had a whammy bar, but it didn't do the same thing. Or mm. I think he did. I, I'd have to even look at the picture. I don't really remember, but I remember whatever I do, he would smile and he would do something. He would like outdo me. And it was like, Oh shit. You know what I mean? Like, so it was just very fun and very nice. And, 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 and I was really appreciative of the opportunity because how often does Les Paul invite you just to come play? Cause he heard your stuff and wanted to jam with you. I was like, well, that's pretty cool. So at the time I had my Ibanez, which was what I was playing. And my dad had that 59 Les Paul that was in really good shape. And so my dad brought a Sharpie and he took a screwdriver and he took the pick guard off the, the 59 Les Paul. And he's holding the pick guard and he says, Hey, Les, you know, that was, you know, I really appreciate you doing that with my son. It was like for my dad, he was loving it. Cause Les yeah. Paul, asked his kid to play. So he was like, so this is how crazy my dad is. My dad's got this pristine 59 Paul quilt top. I mean, this thing doesn't have a ding on it. You know, he pulls the pick guard off and Les says, you want me to sign the Les Paul? My dad goes, fuck that. Sign the guitar. And he hands him the guitar and right under the pick guard, Les Paul signed it, Les Paul. So you could put the pick guard on and you wouldn't see it or you could take it off. I guess Les knew to do that, you know? And, wow. and I go to my dad, I go, do you realize that's, he goes, he goes, I don't give a shit. It's a guitar. Fuck it. You know, so we, so we had a 59 Les Paul signed by Les Paul, which we sold to buy my mom, the Mazda Miata that I drove to the David Lee Roth thing. So, wow. so yeah. So full circle. Yeah. Cause that's we didn't cool. have any money. You know what I mean? Like we, yeah. you know, so we sold the thing. So, so I guess you can say because of Les Paul, no, I don't know, but anyway, so we signed it. And so somewhere out there, 
in the vintage world, there's going to be a quilt top 59 Les Paul in great condition. that has got Les Paul signature on it and know that my dad fucked you guys over on that one. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Or, or he had the greatest, you know, one of the greatest guitar players of all time sign your Les Paul, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. So yeah. we looked at it like we had this, you know, we, we had so much respect for him just as what he's, you know, just as a player and what he's contributed to the guitar community that, yeah, we'll see yeah. that's, that's just how my dad was. That's the respect he had for him. Like, no, don't sign the pick art, sign the guitar. And this was, even at the time was the, was the, was the unicorn of guitars. And that's, that's just kind of how we are as people. Like we just, you know, we appreciate art and artists. And to be honest with you, even guitar players that you guys think suck, I probably like them. You know what I mean? Because I just like guitar and I like musicians and I like all this stuff. So you know, I, I'm so amazed because, like I said, I at the beginning, like I I tried to play guitar and I'm like, I can't play like these guys. I'm like, you guys do. I, that's why I'm so amazed by guitar players like yourself. Like it's, it's just no different. I go on Instagram and I'm like, it's it's gone nuts. I can't, you know, it's not. And I I wouldn't say that I can't. It's just that I don't want to spend the time to have to build up that skill set. You know, dude, I'm I don't know because I saw a, I saw a video of you just. It's crazy. I heard you say that at one point you gave up all your guitars, but yeah. I saw a video of you at Nam just like a couple of years ago and you pick up the guitar and I'm just like, my jaw is dry. And I see all the guitar players do this stuff all the time, but every time it's amazing. And I felt like that one, especially, uh, it's like a two minute video. I, I don't know if you get paid for that. Cause it's got like 80,000 views or something, but you just shred. And it's just like when you were a kid, all these people are gathering around and watching. Yeah. It's awesome. I, I, I guess I've just always had a thing with it. You know, I'm not, you know, it's, it's hard. Like I respect it. So I take great pride in it, but at the same time, I don't, I'm not curing cancer here. You know what I mean? So it, it is what it is, but there's some videos. I have some videos that have 33 million views. Like the crazy part is like, if you, the, the stuff that really gets out there is like the stuff that I'm doing now is all the, is all like the, the, the TV and film stuff. Yeah. Like we did it. We were trying to, I think if you get 67, if you get 65 million views or something like that, you can go gold. I'm close. I think on one song alone, I'm up to like, I'm like, I'm like 10 million away or something like that. And then I can get certified for some stupid award. I don't want anyways. <laughs> You know, but yeah, anyway, so is that yeah. like because you have like yeah, dogs of war, and yep. I've listened to your Spotify stuff like Devil You Know, The Grave Digger. Yeah. I like this as like I don't know what you call it, like a, it's like a spooky kind of country modern. It's yeah. kind of like a well, Queens of the Stone Age, kind of dark country. We kind of yeah. and the crazy part is that's really the big story that no one's hip to, like that that which is a whole nother podcast within itself is the whole music, television, and film. The way yeah, because part of being an artist, and this is like the 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 the, the crazy part about anything is like. If you want to be a musician, I have to constantly reinvent. So I have to become an engineer, a mixer, a guitarist, a bassist, a drummer, a keyboardist, a singer. I have to write lyrics. I have to write, you know, then you have to get the right stuff because right. at the end of the day, it's really merit-based. If I put something out in the world and it's not that good, no one gives a shit. You know what I mean? You have to mm -hmm. fight through everybody else and all the, you know, all the Adele's and all the, you know, Billy Eilish's you have to, you're competing with these people. So you have to bring something that is of caliber. And I've had to do that since, since I was 15, my tape that I had in the beginning had to be good enough to want them to start their magazine with that tape. You know what I mean? Like that. So, so, you know, you're, that's kind of why I kind of feel like I was always kind of like, I took a bare knuckle approach to guitar, you know, because I've always just had to scrap my way through it. And then as life changed and as the industry moved, I had to adapt and change with it. And so now, you know, I kind of feel like I've worked my way to a really good spot in the, the TV and film thing, you know, considering I've been able to buy houses and raise family, you know, off of ultimately, you know, creative work. I mean, that's a good deal for me. You know what I mean? And uh, it's definitely, you know, you know, not been without its challenges or, 
uh, it's sacrifices. You definitely give to get, you know I mean? While everybody was out playing and going to college, I was on the road touring, grinding it out. You know what I mean? And I've never stopped since I was, you know, since I've been a kid, you know, so there's that, but it's allowed me to, you know, afford medical insurance for my, for my family, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, my wife wants a car, we buy her a car, you know what I mean? Like, so there's been certain advantages that have really worked well, but it's not free. And, uh, and that's really the interesting part. The interesting part of more than the, I know the guitar stuff is the fun stuff, but it's really the television and film is mm-hmm. really where the, the, the stories kick in for a lot of stuff. So it's been good and it's been fun and I've had all these great stories and hopefully we'll continue more. But yeah, you're right. At one point I got rid of all my guitars. I just was done and I just didn't want to do it anymore. And I, at that point I was just taking on work that was just going to be, you know, to just pay my bills at that point. It was like, okay, I've got a mortgage at this point. I sold all my guitars, got rid of them all. And, the, and, and I was friends with Dweezil out here and he always had a whole bunch of guitars. So I kept one guitar and whenever I would do sessions, I'd just call him, Hey, can I borrow a strap? Can I borrow a tell? He's like, yeah, yeah, just come take whatever you want. And so I would just use his guitars. As a matter of fact, just as how cool he is. I did this one session for, for first com where I was doing kind of like uh, these, it was for television and film. They wanted like Stevie Ray Vaughan type stuff. And uh, <laughs> I didn't own a Strat. I only owned one guitar and I sold it. I just bought my house and I'd taken all the, I just was so done with everything. I was like, I just, I needed to, I needed to purge it and just get out. And so I was, I was living in that house and I called to his, I said, oh shit, I got rid of my Strat. I said, Hey, can I borrow a Strat? And he goes, yeah, yeah. So I show up at his house and he had a bunch of them and he had like a you know bunch of them in, in like this kind of like guitar row and I said, I just need a Strat. And he goes, well, just pick the one you want. I go, I don't care what it is. I just, it just has to have big frets because I got to do a lot of that Steve Ray Vaughan bending and he has big frets. So he just grabs the first one that's next to me. He goes, here, just take this one. And I don't think I had the right case for it. He goes, just take that one, just do it in the case. And, and then when I got home, he had given me the Hendrix Strat to use. You know, the Damn. Strat. yeah, he just, that's how cool he just didn't, you know, because they were just tools. Like we all knew what that was and what it wasn't. Yeah. But that, like when you get to a certain level, when you're in the room with these, like when you're in the room with David Lee Roth, he's no longer David Lee Roth. He's just that guy. You you take him as an artist at that point. Right. You have to be able to check all that shit at the door, you know, you know, and I work with Melissa Etheridge or, or, or Ziggy Marley or whoever it is. You're just, you just, you have to meet with them. You kind of get a feel for who they are. And as an artist, and then your job is to, well, how do we, you know, or how does my contribution make this artist's thing better? You know? And so I think part of, and they don't, no one ever talks about this stuff, but that's what being, an artist is, is you meet with people and it doesn't matter whether you've sold a million or 10 million or none. It's just about the true art of it. And that's what I like. That's kind of why. So that's why I just think it's funny. It's like, oh yeah, grab that. It's a strat. You know what I mean? Or whatever. Okay. It was honestly, it was just a strat with big frets. And so I'm sitting there playing the Hendrix guitar and he was just kind enough and didn't, you know, he didn't, he just wasn't precious about it. It's like, here, take it, it do your thing. And then, you know, and then when I was done with it, I give it right back. It was no big deal. You know what I mean? And that's, that's kind of how I think that's kind of why we've always gotten along on that level because we've always just, you know, when I first moved out here, he was one of the very few people that I knew and we just always appreciated music. Like we'd be sitting there listening to like ACDC at two in the morning and then whatever celebrity would come over. We didn't even give a shit. We're like, whatever, dude, check out this riff. You know what I mean? Like we were so hot on the, on, you know, listening to fucking whatever it was that we didn't give a shit, whoever the celebrity was, because we were, we were just in that moment and we were all about the music and that's how, you know, that's kind of how I like to, you know, live my life that way. I think it's, it, there's a pureness to it considering the rest of the world's gone to shit. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, yeah, I don't want any part of what's going on right now. It's just nuts, you know, and yeah. uh, try raising kids through that fucking, 
shit show of a fucking golden apple. <laughs> well, that's why I love what you do. I love the art. You say, yeah, you're not curing cancer, but you're entertaining. And I mean, for me, it was like, I don't know how, I don't think I would have made it through my teen years without music. So I appreciate yeah, I don't, you know, I don't even know where I could be without music. Like it allowed me to focus in, in, you know, and maybe it allowed me to shut out a lot of the negative stuff and just stay. So I couldn't be more grateful for it. And that's why I hold it like as dear, but then I kind of keep it loose too, because I think if you hold things too tight, you know, like that's why I'll share any information. I don't care. Like if it makes, if it makes somebody else create something better than awesome, I kind of feel like I benefit from it, from it because, you know, then I get to enjoy that cool fucking piece of music they made or, or whatever, you know what I mean? So, you know, that's just how I, how I, and, I and honestly, let me leave by saying this. What I liked is that kind of like when I was playing with Jack, it didn't matter your age or your ethnicity or your color. No one gave a shit. It was just like, you got the goods, come up on stage. You know what I mean? And, and if you delivered, you, Hell got yeah. atta, you got the attaboy or the atta girl. And if you didn't, then you were like, dude, do that. You got to up your game. You know what I mean? And it was kind of like, it made you want to be better. And like all that social bullshit was left at the door. I didn't even realize I was playing from guys from parliament until I heard them talking on the bus. I'm like, Oh shit. <laughs> right. You know? But I didn't care because I, I just thought they were great. You know, it didn't. didn't no, matter. that's that's how I, I think that's the one thing about music is it brings everyone together from all different backgrounds. Because yeah. if it's good music, who gives a shit? What yeah, you're, dude, like you're, you no make good music? It. I don't yeah. give a shit. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, when it's good every now and then you'll hear something you're like, oh, yeah. You know, you look to your friend. They're like, yep. You know what I mean? It's so uh, it's all the bullshit goes away. And that's what I like it. it there's, there's, a, there's a pureness to it. So absolutely. I find that, I find that awesome. So. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I always end with a charity. Is there one that I know you're uh, a big supporter of uh, animals or is there another yeah, charity anything, that you want to? Anything, anything animal based. I, I just okay. feel, I feel like I, anybody that will do any kind thing for any animal just because they really can't stand up for themselves. And exactly. you know, they do things that are kind of quirky at times. There's really no maliciousness behind it. So yes. I am so pro animal on any level, anything. My mom, uh, work for the um, humane society. I know that that was good. Okay. It's hard with these charities because you never really know where it ends up, but anything right. animal related or even, you know, honestly, if you just make an effort to do anything kind towards an animal, I would greatly uh, appreciate that and be forever in your debt on that level. So, okay. Um, I love it. Well, thank you so much for doing this and going way over the time limit that you were. Uh, yeah. Like I said, sorry about the rough start there, but welcome, right. to, welcome to my world. But listen, I, I very much appreciate fun. your time and I especially appreciate anybody's time. That's willing to listen to me blabber on at a million miles an hour about some crazy old story. So. Oh, it was great. It was so much fun. I loved it. Thank awesome. you so much, Blues. All right. Take it easy. Thank you. All right. See you later. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, thank you again to Blues Saracino. Very cool to have him on the show because I know he doesn't do a lot of interviews. I was a big fan. And I still am. I love the stuff he's doing now. Check out his Spotify to hear some of the stuff that he has. Uh, he's got his music placed in tons of film and TV and check his website in the show notes to see the full list. It's really long. He's doing a lot of great work with all that stuff. He's also on social media if you want to follow him. Uh, mostly Instagram is what I'm seeing him post on. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, check out some of the other stuff I've done. Uh, so make sure to subscribe or follow me on social media to keep up with future episodes. I appreciate your support. Thank you for listening. Have a great day and shoot for the moon. Shoot for the moon.